squeeze it there. Broadhurst down, Bound still pumping punches into it. That's a big Oh, it is a miracle. The play continues. They could sidestep on a trip and win this line. Good one. A smack their bottoms. 40 20. It's a 40-20, it's there. Hits the crossbar. You won't see anything like that again this year, and maybe never. Digging up dead football, it's the Rugby League Cemetery. It does not get any better than that. Yes, this is the Rugby League Cemetery, and we are back with a vengeance, my very good friends. It is good to have you with us. And we are travelling today back to 1986, 28 September 1986, Parramatta 4, Canterbury 2, in front of 45,843 people at the Sydney Cricket Ground, the only trialless grand final and a game which is extremely well known for that and many other things. Uh, thanks for staying with us. Uh, we, we know we've had a little bit of a break in transmission. And if I can briefly break character and, and be uh, slightly earnest, there have been a lot of people getting in touch uh, and saying, when are you coming back? When's the cemetery coming back? Uh, we love it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, whoever you are, uh, I fear for you, but uh, we appreciate it. Um, it is it is simultaneously very lovely and very baffling that anyone would want to listen to us prattle on about these matches, but uh, here we are. Gazzy, uh, can I get your your first impressions of the 1986 grand final, having just watched it, uh, what? How can you, how can you describe a game like this, and, and what was your kind of overall impression of it? Yeah, Morgs, good to be back. Um, it's, it's a very difficult game to get a feel on. Uh, it, it's such '80s football. It's such early '80s football still. Um, yeah. it, it's just slogfest and possessions, like slogfest and field position. Um, interspersed with magical moments by very good players. Um, and and I, I, I hope that makes sense. There's so little scope, it seems to me back then, for upsets and unusual things to happen. It seems more that whoever has the couple of players who are capable of bursting out of the quagmire will eventually sort of come out on top, which is why probably the finals are quite good games where everyone has someone like that. So you've got a Mortimer on one side and a, and a Terry Lamb versus a, a Kenny and, you know, and some of Parramatta's other sensational players um, because the whole game is almost just an equal set of forwards. And it seems like that in a lot of games we've watched, it's just a set of good, hard, honest forwards on both teams, just bashing away for possession. And then, your team has to have the guy that can just do something that seems to come out of nowhere at the right mm. time to create points. There's no set structure for points or, or, or formula for points, is there? It's just bash and bash and fight away. And then your good players have to just click and just do something that you go, well, where'd that come from? And every sort of 25 minutes or so, something like that does happen, albeit not leading to tries in this game, where you go, oh, geez, well, I didn't see that coming. There's no signs that was going to happen. Um, and that's almost the whole game, the, the whole way through. It was the same in the 70s football we watched. Yeah, I was going to say, it actually mm. reminded me quite a lot of, of 77 mm. and 78, where, uh, and in particular 77, where you would have this bash and barge game up the middle, and then all of a sudden Ted Goodwin would do something. Or, yeah. you know, mm. uh, and it would it would come absolutely out of nowhere. And then that bit of excitement would disappear and then everyone would wait for something else to happen. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it's a it's an extraordinary game uh, and, and, and came in the middle of an era in which this sort of thing was quite common. The previous two grand finals uh, had both had one try each, 7-6 in 85, Canterbury over St. George, and 6-4 in 84, Canterbury over Parramatta. Um, 
So a total of four tries across those two grand finals. Uh, it, it's it, the other thing that jumped out to me about this is that we've watched 87 and it looks nothing like this. Like the 87 grand final is Cliff Lyons running around in circles and there is this constant attack and constant attacking threat and the ball is zinging from side to side. I don't know what the hell happened mm. in the 1987 preseason, but all of this, uh, all of this kind of turgid football seems to have just, I mean, I'm sure it was still going on in the comp, but as far as the elite sides went, it just disappeared. Canberra didn't play like this and Manly certainly didn't. No, absolutely not. And then, you know, your next couple of grand finals after that, you've got that wonderful Tigers side and, of course, the 89 grand final. Like, mm. this is one of the most incredible back and forth games ever. And then you're right into sort of the era of, of Canberra and Penrith, um, who certainly weren't like this. So it is almost the last sort of bastion of old football, this game. Um and it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's I enjoyed the game, and we'll get into this, and I've enjoyed it immensely, and we'll talk about a lot of good things. But a lot of people really glorify that that era of football. I don't necessarily know that four tries in three grand finals is a model or not scoring. I, personally, mm. I, thought, I, I think the, the break into the 90s football um, – was good for the game. I know once we got to unlimited interchange and, you know, all that sort of stuff, it went a bit wildly the other way with all this probably too many points happening and all that sort of thing. But there's a sweet spot probably in the nineties where I think we probably got the balance right because I I don't know that, uh, you know, it's exciting and everything else, but I don't know that you want to watch that every week. (laughs) (laughs) And stuff like, and hoping just like crossing your fingers over which, you know, Pillard who can't kick basically is going to happen to hit one today because that's sort of the, the, none of them are any good at goal kicking and the game's sort of just going to come down to who kicks. Yeah. You know, and, what and bad we, goal kicker gets them right. You and know? where you get your penalties, that's, right? Like, and, and, yeah, and, and so yeah. much, and, and introduce such a random element into the game because mm. it all sort of turned on one, what which penalties the referee saw and chose to blow and where they were. Like the, um, yeah. And this is also true in 77, right? Like, the, 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 almost the whole game. Uh, in a similar way to which rugby union still is, is determined by like field position turning into yep. to penalty goals. Uh, yeah, it's you're right. It's so different. Yeah, than and we've watched. That's right, and there is that element of chance in it because, like, like if, I remember there was a few times I was watching. I was like, God, imagine the bunker calling this game, and and, and I raised that because not because I wanted to, <laughs> but just because if you look at what gets penalised and what gets missed, I mean, the amount of times there could be a penalty kick for objectively exactly the same thing that had led to a penalty kick earlier or later in the game is is remarkable because it you know there's only the one referee doing his best in a. Um, amateurish much more amateur era where they're probably much less sort of fit and everything else than now and the touches are a fair way away from it and everything else so, so like there is all of these moments where you'd be like well I mean Parramatta might have got four penalties um even if you look at the high tackle penalties some of the high tackle penalties Parramatta got were very much penalties but I could have found you 10 more that were objectively absolutely no different than the ones that got on both teams that, that got given so yeah it is very much which penalty are the referees going to blow and I mean referees will always have a say in it but the less tries there are, the more that can determine um, contests. But um, I think the only other thing I wanted to mention was to give a lot of credit to Canterbury in that if I was going to describe this game, I'd describe this as a – their performance was almost like a Queensland underdog performance, and that's what it would have been if they got home, where I thought they had no right to win the game and that Parramatta were much better than them. Um, and if, like, on another day, Parramatta might have scored four tries, but by – 
working so hard and, and just not giving up in that game and defending so well. Mm. They, they, they saved a lot of tries and they end up close enough in the last 10 minutes to win the game. And as I'm sure we'll get to, absolutely come steaming home over the top of them. And if that game went for 90 minutes, then they would have won the grand final. Like they were coming home with absolutely everything yeah. um, in terrible circumstances, being short for large parts of the game, really. And, um, and that if they had got home, it would have been very much what you would have looked at. It's one of those Queensland wins where you get to the end and go, how did they possibly, why did they win that game over New South Wales who had better players and were better? on the day. Um, they, they were incredible. They deserve a lot of credit. Oh, they had the, mm. the, the field position and everything was completely tilted against them. And, and Parramatta yeah. uh, were at them for most of the game and they just kept hanging in and hanging in. And yeah. as you say, had made a real, uh, real bash at them in the last, particularly in the last 10 minutes, which we will oh, get to. Steaming at them. For a game that was so uh, slow in parts and, and, and tough, mm. the finish is really helter-skelter. Uh, which, yeah. which, which, as I say, we will get to. But I, I thought we should probably go back over the over the history of these two sides and over the rivalry a little bit because it's an astonishing period in the game mm. as far as the dominance of two teams. But before we do that, just one more thing. I, I think you do have to acknowledge how tough this game was, how physically spent everybody looked at the end of it, but also without any fights breaking out, it's incredible. Mm. It's really violent and like nasty, right? Like there are people getting uppercutted in tackles. There are like wild swinging arms all the time, shots off the ball. It's um, you had to be, you 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 had to have your eyes open if you were out there, and you had to be a tough hombre to be out on the field oh. in a game like this. Oh yeah. Um no wonder Ray Price is retiring. Oh my god. He... <laughs> the amount of punishment he copped in that game. They'd obviously decided that like it, he's very good, or I mean rightly, and would be best off being concussed as many times as could possibly occur over an 80-minute period. Um and, and Ray Price, wonderful play that he is, has turned into a bit of a cranky old man in our lifetimes. You know, like all he ever yeah. does is weigh into really rag on Parramatta not that they haven't deserved it from time to time but he's very much never got anything nice to say and I'm prepared to forgive a lot of that seeing how many times he has been even in the one game that we have watched here the amount of times he's clobbered in the head I'm prepared to forgive a lot of his ill temper because Jesus Christ it cannot be good for you and he he looks it like he's Mm. he's nose is split he's got scabs on his face and scars on his face and he's stumbling he is I mean others as well but he just absolutely copped. No wonder he retired. Like, why would you play that and think, geez, I want to do that next year? <laughs> oh, yeah. he, you're absolutely right. Like, he really is singled out. And mm. no, none of it, very little of it is legal. He just, they just belt him. They just, every every time he gets near any of them, mm. um, there are swinging arms aimed at his head and yeah. pu- punches in some cases. And it is just, yeah, he really, really gets, gets targeted. It, and you're right. It's another it's an incredibly show of the era. Display. I saw him interviewed about it, and yeah. he said he acknowledged that, and he said, "Oh well, there was no way I was coming off. You know, there was no, <laughs> which is yeah. the amount of punishment he cops is unbelievable." Well, it's another show of the era um, mm. because it's something that lasted for a while. And and what I was going to get at there is, um, it reminds me a lot of in the early or mid nineties, even you think like, like the way say a Paul Harrigan went at a Mark Carroll and back and forth. If there was this era that lasted into the mid nineties of gladiatorial sort of element where you went after the big nasty guy 
in the other team. Whereas like when you play now, everyone's goal is to get Viliami kick out to run at the halfback, mm. not at not at the biggest guy. Like they don't want him to run at David Fafita when they play play the Titans and yeah. they don't actually they actually no longer try and line up big men at big men. It, it's not as common anymore. Um, I mean tactically very sound, but there's a lovely heroic element. And and the reason I raise that is because Peter Sterling runs the ball quite a lot of this game and never cops anything like actually what Ray mm. Price cops, that they're, they're determined to knock Ray Price out of the game, even though fundamentally it possibly would have made a lot more sense and been a lot easier um, to have murdered Peter Sterling. And yeah. and that uh, and I'm not saying they don't try and hit him or anything, but there's that gladiatorial old school honorable element sort of honor to it, isn't there, where you go after the other team's prop and second rowers and you go after that guy. Um, and it took a long time for coaches to tweak that maybe you should really try and hammer the small guys who tend to be the most influential in the result. <laughs> That's you're so right. It is. There's this very old fashioned idea of honor and picking on someone your own size almost and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. That, yeah. that seems to inform the way that they, they go at each other. Yeah, you're right. Uh, we'll have, I dare say we'll have more to say about Ray Price uh, and a few others later on. Uh, we should talk a little bit about these two clubs and what they managed to do in the eighties. Uh, and I've got a lot of I've got a lot of stats and bits and pieces here. I won't overload you, but um, the, the the headline of it is that between them, Canterbury and Parramatta won every premiership from 1980 to 1986, and won eight of the ten premierships in the 1980s, which is just astonishing. From 1983 to 86, they either met in the grand final or the prelim every year mm. uh, for for four years in a row. So, in other words, it was it was whoever won between them ended up winning the grand final. They played 16 times between 1983 and 1986, including the Panasonic Cup, 16 games. Uh, Canterbury won eight, Parramatta won eight. And this is how close they were. The for and again, uh, the, sorry, the points scored across those games, across 16 games, Parramatta 218, Canterbury 207. It's mental, isn't it? So across 16 games, there was less than a point per game between them. Well, I think it's fairly obvious that it's the best rivalry ever um, Mm. in rugby league. Um, I don't think there's ever been anything compared to that over that sustained period. Um, For younger listeners in our lifetime, the only thing we've ever had that I think approached the hype and intensity of that over a shorter period was probably Manly and Melbourne. Um, there, there was a few years there where every time they played, it was wound up and heavy and, and, and they were the best, but that was a much shorter. It was probably only three years, I would say, where that hit. I mean, it, it stayed around for a while, but that, that three years and the height that was around then was that's what this was over a much longer time period, really. I don't think you could say there's ever been a rivalry as long and important as that one where it was just determining the competition. No, I, I think that's right. It's mm. extraordinary um, for, for the, the level of the excellence of both of them at the same time. It's mm. very, very unusual. Yeah. Like these are both mm. historically good, historically elite sides. They probably both have a claim to be in the, geez, top 10 sides ever. Um, yeah. And, and they happen to be around at the same time. And you're right, it's extraordinary. Uh, I'll give you some background on the two clubs and their seasons and their histories and all that sort of thing. Uh, Canterbury, third place in 1986, 15 wins, eight losses and a draw. Premiers in 1938 and 42, regulars in the finals in the 70s. Then in 1980, they finally won it. 
uh, in the entertainer's year, of course, Steve Gearan catching the bomb. Uh, then 1081, 1882. So they actually had a bit of a fallow period in the first couple of years after that premiership. Then made the prelim in 83. Warren Ryan took over in 84 from Ted Glossop and uh, went premiership, premiership, grand final. Just to give you an idea of the impact that Warren Ryan had upon taking over, he is particularly known in this era for what he did to defence in the game uh, and what he managed to do with the Canterbury defence. And, and he is really, whenever you talk to older people who are around at this time and you talk about these like really tough, turgid grand finals with one try each, people just shake their heads and say, oh, you know, Warren Ryan. Uh, just to give you an example of that, I'll, I'll give you the points against, points conceded by Canterbury in each season from 82, right? So the first two, the two years before Wok took over, 361 points they conceded and 409. Now, 409, that's in 83. They made the prelim with that. Mm. He takes over in 84 and they conceded 237 points. Yeah, it's insane, isn't it? It's unbelievable. So he's nearly halved the amount of points they're letting in. And then that continued for the next two years, 267 in 85, 264 in 86. Uh, it's extraordinary. 84, they yeah, won. I... Oh, sorry, you go. No, I, I just uh, think he's he needs so much credit in terms of what he's done. If, if you, We've just looked at how good the Bulldogs were in the 1980s. But you look at you look at how good Warren Ryan was like in the 1980s and how many grand finals he actually coached in that time frame is just absolutely incredible. Um, It's just stunning really, because he goes in there to make a grand final with Newtown. Then he makes the 84, 85, 86, 88, and 89 grand final. Mm. So he's one, two, three, four, six across the 1980s. In 10 years. Across three different clubs. Across three clubs. Particularly when only two clubs, you know, two clubs competed in like, you know, eight out of 10 of them or whatever it was, or, or yeah. Canterbury and Parramatta, and he didn't coach one of them. Um, it was still in, you know, it's, it's incredible um, what he did in terms of performance, particularly like Newtown and the Tigers were teams that didn't make them. And the Bulldogs, as you can see here, like actually, like what, as you've just said, weren't actually making them. They weren't a bad team, but they were, they'd, they'd won one, but they, had, they weren't, they weren't right at the peak when he took them over. Mm. Um, you know, they'd, they'd been, they'd done well, but they, they weren't the side they were. Like that, that's, I'm trying to remember, I mean, Craig Bellamy has probably got something similar to that. If you count the ones that were taken off them. Um, but otherwise I, I think you'd struggle to find someone who went to six in a 10 year period. I, I haven't looked, Well, even, you'd even, have to have a fair look. Even Wayne, uh, mm. 92, 93, Super League in 97, 98. Um, so that's, yeah. that's, that's four if you count Super four. League uh, yeah. in the 90s. Uh, it's pretty good going. Yeah, it's extraordinary. It's incredible, yeah. And, and it, it's a mark of, of yeah, I, think, I just think that defence stat is a great mark of, what, of, of the transformation that happened straight away when he, yep. when he, came, when he turned up. Uh, 6-4 over Parra in 1984. One try, in the grand, one try each in the grand final. They won it on kicking. Mortimer kicked one from one, Cronin kicked none from two. Then in 85, 7-6 over St. George, one try each and an Andrew Farrah field goal to win them that game. So they came into 86 looking for three premierships in a row. Their top try scorers in 86, Steve O'Brien on 12, Terry Lamb on 12. I dare say a few of those might have been backing up, Gazzy, do you reckon? 
I would say so. Yes. A very, very, very good support player, Terry Lamb, I hear. I'm told. I'm relying on <laughs> if there was a if there was a support players of mortals, Terry Lamb would be first yeah. selected. Yeah, it uh, doesn't come up much. No one really mentions it, but very yeah. good in support. <laughs> I'm appointed by acclamation. 210 <laughs> points for Terry Lamb in 1986. Uh, they missed the finals the following year, incidentally. Walk left, and then they came back and won the comp in 88 with Gus. But one little... That's one, probably one more thing to mention on Walk, just quickly, is that if we're going to talk about how credible his record is, like, he must be so personally unpleasant to have ended up not coaching them after that. <laughs> like, can you imagine? If, if, imagine um, just imagine if someone signed a coach now, right, and they'd won a grand final before getting there, you know, like he had, then they come in and they went win premiership premiership grand final like the concept of them not being there like yeah. you'd be on a fit 20-year deal i mean trent robinson will never ever get sacked having not quite done as well as as the walk in his first few seasons yeah what and he'll never for, get sacked what would it know? take for ivan cleary to, to end up not at penrith after next year for example after yeah three years yeah. Of dominance. Like, yeah yeah it's extraordinary yeah, yeah that's quite right yeah yeah and that's, <laughs> it's a similar they're hitting a similar kind of that's a similar kind of level yeah. um yeah yeah uh, in fact, just to give you an example of the what I'm going to describe as the walk problem, uh, Steve Mortimer fell out with him in 86 and had actually done a deal to go to Manly in 87 and was fully intended to leave because he, he couldn't work with the walk. And obviously they were able to patch it up and Mortimer was able to, to finish his career at Canterbury. But it gives you an idea of how, as mm. you say, like how much kind of trouble yeah. was always brewing whenever on account of the walk's methods, I suppose. Well, uh, luckily, by bringing bringing in Phil Gould, they brought in someone much more personable and less likely for personal fallouts and grudges to occur. Famously easygoing. That's true. Um, yeah, well, he when well, was he there? 89, uh, 80, 89, 90, and then he, he was gone. Or did he go, in, he go to Penrith in 90? He might have only been at Canterbury for two years. But Yeah, yeah, that's right. And they possibly into Chris Anderson not long after. It's just a, a streamed line of, of really, like, good blokes who don't fall <laughs> out with anyone. Happy-go-lucky happy go lucky yeah. types, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. True. The family club. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Parramatta, I'll talk a little bit about their season as well. Mm. They finished first. They only won. One more game than Canterbury. 16 wins, seven losses, and a draw for 37 points. Uh, they had won 12 spoons before their first premiership, including six spoons in a row, 56 to 61. Uh, Gazzy, you and I sat through three spoons in a row as Newcastle Knights supporters. I'm not sure that I would have been too keen on having another three after that, just doubling what uh, we already sat through. No, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have been doubling what we already sat through, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And then having finally won the premiership in 81 with that win over Newtown, they won it again in 82 and again in 83. They were runners-up in 84, as I said, losing to Canterbury in the grand final and then made the prelim in 85. Uh, John Money had taken over from Jack Gibson in 1984 and hadn't won a premiership yet coming into this game. So there would have been a huge amount of pressure on him. He takes over this, this, this gargantuan side from Jack Gibson who had won three premierships in a row. And in the first two years, can't quite get it done. Uh, there must have been enormous pressure on him. Uh, the it's funny, have... Parramatta, isn't it? It's, it's funny. Just you mentioned, I, I just think while you're on how bad it was for a long time before and how much it burst into flower once they actually won one. 
Um, it's such a funny thing that we have this, but this period, it, it, I call it almost the Newcastle Knights problem, where the Newcastle Knights in our lifetime have generally been so bad, but because of that one golden period with Andrew Johns, everyone goes, what's wrong at Newcastle? Geez, like, why well, they can't get back to their glory days. But mm. Newcastle were terrible for a long time, really good on, with Andrew Johns for a, a window of time and never any good again. And, and people go, oh, you know, like it's a far day from the, the glory days, but it's actually this is the status quo. And that yeah. was the unusual thing. And then with yeah. Parramatta, it's almost a longer term thing of the same thing is that everyone goes, oh, Parramatta, the sleeping giant, if they can ever get back to their glory days and they've never recaptured the power they had then. But if you actually look at the history of the club, they weren't any good before. And they actually were only ever seriously competitive repetitively with this one team like over a sustained period. Outside of this one group of players, they were never sustainably good in a very long history now. No, really? You're right? absolutely right. No, totally. The, 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 the historical kind of perspective. I don't mean to bag them. But no, no, but you're right. Um, it is a little unfair on the whole show to kind of say, well, they need to get, you know, they need to get back this to This is the days. outlier. This is not the, this isn't the status quo. This is the outlier, this period. They're not a, a really strong club having a bad 15 years. It's actually a club that's always had struggled to be at the top of the tree for whatever reason over a long time that actually had a brief period where it all went right. Yeah, um, and went right. very, very right, very, very right. So, well, you know, that's it's, if you followed them and you saw all this, it'd be enough. I would have thought. I would have thought you mm. can pack it up after this because the, this yeah. this period is extraordinary. Uh, mm. 20, 20 to eleven over Newtown in eighty one. Brett Kenny two tries. Uh, Twenty one eight over Manly in nineteen eighty two. Brett Kenny two tries. They led sixteen three at half time. Uh, how's the points difference for that season, by the way? They scored 619 points in 1982 and conceded 242, nearly plus 400. Pretty good yeah. going. And then in that's a lot of points. That's a lot of points in a, in a season at that time, I would have thought. That that's a lot, of, lot in the 80s football with a lot yeah. of tries. Certainly is. 18-6 over Manly in 1983. Brett Kenny, two tries. 12-0 lead at halftime. 639 points in 1983. They beat mm. Canterbury 18-4 in the prelim. Uh from that first win in '81, all of the all of the big kind of names are there: Growth, uh, Cronin, Ella, Growth, Kenny, Sterling, Price, Muggleton. They're all still at Parramatta. Uh, Para fans, as as is extremely well known, had burned down Cumberland Oval after their win in '81, burned mm. the burned the grandstand down. What I didn't realise is that because they didn't have a ground, Parramatta actually played at Belmore from 1982 yes. to 1985. So this greatest period in their history where they had this extraordinary team and were scoring 600 points a season was almost exclusively played at their arch rival's home ground. It's crazy, isn't it? Isn't it extraordinary? Like the, yeah. <laughs> think of the experience of being a Parramatta supporter. Like imagine us as, as, as night supporters. Imagine if our, if, if our best period had been they'd played at Gosford or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's just not quite the same, is it? It just doesn't. It feels. It feels really off. Yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 it's not quite the same. Uh, their average crowd, by the way, in '86 when they finally came back, the Parramatta Stadium had been rebuilt. Uh, their average crowd was nineteen thousand six hundred, which is pretty good going. I think you would have mm. to say. Um, at any time, yeah, at, yeah, at any time. But that would be that would be pretty handy now. Uh, it was extremely good in nineteen eighty six. It was, of course, the last game for Mick Cronin uh, in in the 86 grand final. He had begun 86 by suffering an attached retina in a trial at Cessnock. Did you read about this? They were playing Manly up at Cessnock. They would have got a good game no. that day, I can tell you. Uh, and he, he copped, a, copped a high shot 
had a detached retina, which forced him to go to hospital. And he very nearly had to retire mm. and still had blurred vision when he came back. Didn't play a game in 86 until round 17 in first grade. Then cop broken ribs. Uh, mm. He needed a police escort to get to the ground for the grand final because the, he, he was driving up from Gerringong and there'd been a crash on the Prince's Highway. Uh, and, <laughs> and finally arrived just in time to play the game at 35 years old. Uh, his 216th game for Parramatta. Uh, and was able to kick the two goals that, that took his overall tally to 1,971 points. That's a hell of a lot of uh, obstacles to get to a grand final. Yeah, it is. Um, we'll probably get to him at some point because I've got some yep. thoughts on him when we get to it later in the game. But suffice to say for now that the blurred vision doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, I He certainly kicked like a man who's retina was still detached um i'd be checking that they actually went back in um if i was him like that wasn't a you know a glass eye or something because he was kicking him like someone had no idea where the goalposts were um but yeah he it, it certainly he must have wanted it at that time and the sorts of money they would have got out of playing mm. to just keep coming back that year and not say stuff this like, at 35 you know what i'm just gonna this is all a bit hard he must have really really uh, it's a different time, isn't it? They must have really wanted it oh, to yeah. go through all of that without the financial rewards that come with it today. Because um, that's, a, that's a tough year and a tough life. At that age. You'd be carrying plenty of problems already by 35, I'd have thought, if you'd been playing 200 games yeah, for the club already. You'd be, yeah, yeah. And especially something like that, like something with, that affects your vision that yeah. might have a bearing on your life after football. It's extraordinary mm. that he came back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely remarkable. And, and, and obviously, Ray Price, it was his last game as well, which he announced on the podium after collecting the trophy that he wouldn't be back. Seven tests for the Wallabies before playing rugby league, 259 games for Parramatta. More on him later. Uh, Paris started their season with five in a row. They only once lost two in a row over the course of the whole season. In the finals, they, in their first game of the finals, they beat Canterbury 28-6 as minor premiers and went straight into the grand final. Their only try scorer in double figures in 1986 was Brett Kenny, which probably tells you a little bit about what sort of game it was. I mentioned they were scoring 600 points a game, uh, 600 points a season in 82 and 83. By 86, that was down to 446. So the game mm. had obviously changed a hell of a lot in that time. Uh, yeah, it is uh, just a little bit of background there on the two clubs and what an, what an unbelievable period this was for them and for the game to have these two uh, as I say, sides that could have been could could arguably be in the best ten or so of all time. I got one more stat for you, Gazzy. Mm-hmm. After this game, after this 1986 grand final, Parramatta only beat Canterbury once more in the rest of the 1980s, and only beat them five times in the 90s. In it's interesting, 90s, isn't it? Yeah. For the, for the next 14 years, they beat them six times after winning this grand final. It's incredible. And of course, they, they never, it's, it's worth noting uh, that they never make it back this, this generation, despite Sterling and Kenny playing into the 90s, they don't go back to um, a grand final. And that's not a comment, you know, necessarily against them, but they're probably thought to be the best two players now in that team. Um, there'll be people that say Ray Price, and they may well be right. But I think that if you put it to a poll, most people would say Kenny and Sterling 
were the best two players in that team. And and once Price and, and Cronin had gone, um, and, it, you know, there's probably others that have gone too. It's not quite as simple as that, but they don't really have another go. Um, and I think Parramatta fans at this point would have thought that even allowing for those retirements, that there was still plenty of good days to come, given the age of Kenny and Sterling at this point. Yeah, absolutely. There was no reason. There's plenty to think of football that, left. Yeah, yeah, there's no reason mm. to think that they would suddenly fall off a cliff like they did. No. Um, yeah, it's 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 remarkable. But there you go. That's the um the last bit of detail that I'll give you on that <laughs> on mm. that history. Uh, I suppose we should talk a little bit about the game, or at least the pre-game. Now, Gazzy, I turned this on. I pressed play, and the first thing I was greeted with was an image of the emperor. <laughs> Fitzgerald, yeah. King Dennis. Now, this this was in the era, and it is <clears throat> by me lamented greatly that they don't do this anymore. This was in the era where they would have all the players lined up in the tunnel in number order, and this mad over the top ground announcer would read the players out one by one, and they would run out of the field one by one, which. Amongst other things, meant that the fullback in the first team had been out on the field for about ten minutes by the time of the kickoff. But you see, you see the line of Parramatta players up the tunnel, and you see the Emperor in his uh, Parramatta Eels V-neck pullover, kind of directing traffic, telling them when it's time to go out, giving them a pat on the back, and all this kind of thing. Bullfrog Moore does the same thing for Canterbury, takes it extremely seriously, holds a couple of them back so that they can't run out before their names being called. Well, I was about to say that that's one thing we've left out of the rivalry. This is also very much a rivalry between like two great um, dynastial administrators. Yes, um, the two great uh, administrator dynasties of the of, the, uh, of rugby league. I think you could argue, um, you know, apart from of course that you could say East now have one rivaling this for, for a very long time. Fitzgerald and Bullfrog Moore were probably the standard bearers for like dynasties and just being the head honcho at a club over a very long period of time. Mm. Absolutely. And and so seeing a very young-looking emperor appear on the screen uh, was thrilling to me, I have to say. You know my long-standing interest in uh, Parramatta board matters and Parramatta board controversy. Uh, and so mm. it was a wonderful thing to witness to see, see him very much in his prime. I mean, it doesn't get any better than this for the emperor. He's, he's in position as CEO for about another 20 years after this, but this really is the peak, the, uh, the 86 grand final where he'd, uh, mm. he'd only just retired. I mean, he plays in 77, so he's, he's only recently retired and is and, and mm. running the club and, and doing so to great effect back in, that, in those days. Uh, a, few of the, a few of the announcements of the players, we start off with the workaholic Paul Taylor. Um, he's rock and roll. He's a runner. Eric Growth, number five. <laughs> The man with all the skills and strength, Mark Laurie. Now remember, this is not this is going over the PA. This this is like roaring into a microphone to the whole ground for the whole ground to hear. Uh, the versatile Phil Sigsworth, the talkative Paul Langmack. <laughs> but uh, the two that really jumped out to me as just magnificent, and I don't know how tall you would walk if you were announced in this way as you ran out onto a rugby league ground. Uh, there is one for Steve Mortimer, number seven, the captain, the big gun, the champion, the mercurial, Steve Mortimer. Yeah, it's a good one, that. There's plenty going for him. Uh, yeah, just a bit. And uh, I think the best one of all, this is really, there's really no higher praise than this. Number three, 
this man is rugby league. Michael Cronin. <laughs> oh, it's good, isn't it? It's um. I I think the only thing I got to add to the walkouts was I really circled Brett Kenny's walkout because in a walkout yeah. where everyone else like they announced your name and it was forward sprinting onto the field <laughs> with like dead set blood sort of screeching out of their eyes and those people fired up and those people jogging on and whooping up. Brett Kenny just walks like swaggers like they announce him (laughs) refuses to even break into a semi-jog and just swaggers very much reminiscent of him of course in the challenge cup with his hands in his pockets oh brett kenny he doesn't look like he wants to play he just walk out the the king like brett kenny absolute god just wander like sauntering (laughs) out at a walk onto the ground like nothing is just another day at the office for the great man i'm just gonna go out there and score another double in a grand final you know yeah. like this is no i can handle deal. this this is no yeah. this is just you're absolutely right yeah he, he does it's wonderful yeah there's never been like I, it's it's very hard to remember an athlete it was more casual than him at all times yeah yeah now i don't think we can go any further uh without mentioning one of the real headlines of the 1986 grand final and even as we posted on the on the cemetery facebook through the week what do people remember of this game this kept coming up. People kept mentioning it, uh, and it's particularly topical given what has happened in in Australia over the last week. Uh, the the national anthem, Gassy, for the nineteen eighty six grand final. Now, we, as you, as listeners will recall, we have a great fondness for national anthems and and who performs them. And you know, we've had uh, Julie Anthony, we've had Natalie Bassingthwaite. Um, I think we've had maybe human nature at one point. Uh, this possibly tops all of them. The national anthem performed by the cast of Neighbours. <laughs> um, <laughs> including, and when we say the cast of Neighbours, we're talking about a vintage crop here. Minogue, Donovan, Guy Pearce. Uh, mental, absolutely mental. Well, the cast of Neighbours. How long have Neighbours been on at this point? Well, what did you like, think? Can't been that long. Well, it wasn't, it? And that's what I mean. It's only been on. It's been on for under forty years, and it's just shut. So, like, how long could it have been in existence? Um, I'll just find. Yeah, okay. So it started in March nineteen eighty five. So it was a, a nascent yeah. kind of Neighbours at this point. Yeah. 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 That's right. Well, it's all all um uphill. Or sorry, all downhill from here for Neighbours, really, isn't it? But doing the grand yeah. final with its cast, um, incredible. Uh, it's very important it's put that way that Kylie Minogue wasn't doing the anthem. The cast no, of no. Neighbours was doing the anthem of which she was one part. Indeed. Um, this and isn't Kylie being brought in as the star act. No. And just to explain to people, and we will put the video up hmm. on the page through the week, possibly like quite a few times, but just to be very clear, there is a stage. There are hmm. three separate stand-up microphones with the Channel 10 logo on them. And... Hmm two members of the cast of Neighbours stand at each microphone. So there are six of them. I don't know who the other three were. I wonder if Craig McLaughlin was out there. I didn't notice him. But the, <laughs> the, the, the there are two two cast members at each microphone, so six in total, three microphones, um, all just absolutely belting out the, the, the national anthem. I mean, I note as well, and I don't know if this needs to be mentioned, but being a member of the cast of Neighbours, Neighbours doesn't have any singing in it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Delta know. sang on it. I, I Delta That's did true. sing on it during her stint on it. So I, I dispute that it has it has no singing on it. But I presume you're pointing to the fact that it's not a requirement to be able to sing, to go no. on Neighbours. And, and that sort of shines through because 
Kylie very much can sing, but yeah. there's six of them going and she's very much drowned. Her ability to sing is either not developed at this stage or more likely significantly drowned out by who she's singing with um, yes. over the six voices. It's there's some, not a lot of... I, would you agree there's not a lot of coordination either? Like there's not a lot of... They, no. they seem to all have chosen their own key and their own tune and all of this. Yep. Well, it's it's possibly a lot to do with... I think if they had have got Harold Bishop in on the bugle um, or, or whatever he plays, that would have probably helped ameliorate that issue. Um, it was a shame that he wasn't out there, that's for sure. Um, I don't know. Is this too early for Doctor, like for um, for Doctor Carl, like the real Doctor Carl, to have come on or something like that? <laughs> Wouldn't you like to see him and Izzy do a Neighbours Grand Final like song um, in more recent times, just to <laughs> create some controversy? I was going to say the trouble is Doctor Carl, <laughs> Carl Kennedy would have got booed. <laughs> yeah. He's too young for you. There would have been people yelling. Yeah, at yeah, yeah. He's doing the rat on Susan. I mean, Go back to well, Susan. The game is obsessed with, of course, in, in the modern era of attracting um, mothers and families to the game. Could there have been any, you know, weaker message or any message more likely to uh, sort of alienate them from the game than having Dr. Carl Kennedy come out and sing? No. Um, maybe they never should have had Nat Bass for that reason. Well, indeed. Yeah. Noted love rat, Dr. Carl. That would have caused yeah. all sorts of trouble. I'm obsessed with the idea of Harold Bishop playing the playing the, the bugle <laughs> at the grand final. That, that, that's... It's sensational. I don't know, but it's possible that it's he, not too late. The risk is that he would have that they would have scheduled it for a time when Harold was suffering from amnesia. Yes, and yes, he wouldn't yes, have been able yes. to play. He wouldn't have yeah, known that he exactly played right. the bugle, or wouldn't have wouldn't have been able to play the wouldn't have remembered the national anthem, or would have played the national anthem of the wrong country, or you know, or it might have been when he was lost at sea. So there's all these. Yeah, well, there's. A lot of that there. You'd like to think that Luke Carpenter could have got him on track for the day, but as that aside, <laughs> God, people, people forget Luke Carpenter. <laughs> Not here, they don't. Uh-oh. Oh, good heavens! Oh, R.I.P. Madge. That's all I can say. Uh, never forgotten forever in our hearts. Yeah, incredible. It's incredible that this was allowed to happen. And I just note as well that there must have been an overcorrection because by the following year. Um, the game is still being broadcast on Channel 10, but Julie Anthony is singing the National Anthem. And 87, we wow. famously have Rex Mossop saying, well, that's the pick of them. That's the benchmark by which others should be measured. So by 87, there's very much a, a move back towards the kind of a fundamentalist approach to, mm. to the National Anthem and taking it very seriously and not debasing it uh, with this no. crossover. I mean, I've mentioned before that in modern times, the National Anthem is just performed by whichever... Um, Channel 9 personality they're looking to promote at this time or, uh, you know, someone who has a contract with Sony Music and is about to have an album out, whatever. Uh, back in these days, it was already happening in 86. Yeah, that's right. It's, it, it's Julie Anthony's very much the cold chisel of anthems where that if you just wanted to avoid disputes about how it went, then the entertainment should always be cold chisel and the anthem should always be sung by Julie Anthony. And if Julie Anthony one day is, um, heaven forbid, incapable of performing an anthem, then you'd like to see sort of Tupac-style hologram concert where they just have a hologram of Julie Julie Anthony Anthony. um, performing the anthem and with the same applying for cold chisel because everyone would walk away from every grand final saying the pre-match entertainment was fantastic and the anthem was, they absolutely nailed the anthem. And you'd go away just ticking those two boxes and could get on with the much less important element of just discussing the game. Exactly right. Exactly. Mm. And we all know that, we, we all know that the most important thing about Grand Final Day is the pre-match entertainment and the anthem. Julie Anthony, by the way, is only 72. I reckon she could still get it done. 
Yeah, 100%. 100%. She can still do a job uh, if called upon, and and, and God willing, she will be, um, possibly also accompanied by Harold Bishop, who presumably now is, you know, is out of work. Free, yeah. He's available. Yeah, Yeah, he's got a bit of time on his hands. Anyway, um, we could could really go on about that for sort of an infinite amount of time, but I won't. Uh, The other thing about the pregame that I have to mention and this is one of the one of the real narrative threads of this game, uh, and also quite topical, I suppose, uh, is the commentator is Ray Rabbits Warren. Uh, mm. But it's a very different Ray Rabbits Warren to the one we know and love from Channel 9. Uh, and he begins his coverage as they kick off, uh, not, not letting the game overshadow uh, p- personal considerations, says... And so opens the saddest rugby league commentary that I've ever undertaken. But I hope that it won't affect my professionalism. Now, when I watched this for the first time, I thought to myself, oh, he must be absolutely gay. He must have just loved the crow and Ray Price. Mm. But no, it was his, he, he'd been sacked from, from Channel 10. And right. Yeah, this, so what happened? <laughs> so he had been at Channel 10 in the mid-'80s and then was booted for Rex Mossop. They brought Rex Mossop back for 87, as we heard when we watched the 87 Grand mm. Final. Rams has been resold, uh, and he was, he was sort of sent into exile. Uh, but the extraordinary thing about this, and apparently it was quite controversial because, like Steve Mortimer mentions it in the post-game interview with Channel 10, he says, oh, by the way, I just want to say... Uh, congratulations to Rams on a great year. I'm sorry he's leaving and all this kind of stuff. But mm. apparently he says, he talked about this a, f- a couple of years ago, Rabs, and he said, I pulled out of the Olympic Games that I was supposed to be the head presenter of in 1984, and it was probably the worst decision I've ever made in my life. He, he refused to go to LA for the Olympics to cover it for Channel 10 because he's afraid of flying. Mm. So he wouldn't go. And it didn't just cost me the Olympics, he says. It cost me my job in Ch- Channel 10 in 1986. They said, look, we don't see a great future for us, given that you're our lead sports commentator. So they more or less, once he wouldn't go to the Olympics, they punted him. I don't know if there was a suggestion of sending Rex the Moose Mossop to the Olympics. I would have loved to have heard that. Christ, yeah, it loosened the big city. It, yeah, it, Carl uh, Lewis it, making forward progress, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, well, the amount, the, the way it takes um, the moose to say a sentence, the hundred meters would have finished before he was trying to describe someone's like start, you know, in, uh, with, in the matter, but graphically adjectival terms. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. It is an odd one because I mean, it fundamentally doesn't seem to have not, refusing to fly at this point wouldn't have prevented him from calling a competition that was entirely played in New South Wales mm. and had no teams basically outside of Sydney. Yeah. Um, in essence, and the Raiders were in there and everything else. But, but, but large, by and large, it does seem a different, separate issue. Um, it, it, it was good to have Rabs. I suspect you might have covered this anyway, but while we're on him and how much we love him commentating, it, a little way into the game, it's not immediately, but it's in the first few minutes, it, it is worth noting that Rabs' um, time-honoured tradition does take time out from the game to welcome the international audience, um, something that he became incredibly famous for particularly on this podcast in the 90s. Um, and, and this is a particularly good book because Fantastic. in a show of the times, not only, does he, not only does he welcome the international audience, <laughs> but he starts welcoming independent stations that have taken the claim to the point where he starts listing them all, including like MBN this, MBN that, and naming Dungog. Like, he goes down to the point of naming that, that like Dungog has just tuned in and welcome to all of our Dungog viewers. And for anyone who doesn't know Dungog, like Dungog, 
is a town sort of uh, in, in the sort of Hunter Valley, Hunter region way that has a population. I'm just checking the exact population now. Its population is, is 2,000 yeah. people in country New South Wales or in the Hunter, upper Hunter region. It's quite a long way from what you actually think of as being in the Hunter. You're a long way from Newcastle. That's um, 2000, that's still, 2000 yeah. now. That's not 1986. No, 2000 now in Dungog, yeah. very small country area um, in Hunter region. And, and it's just <laughs> incredible. But it's the end of the list. It goes through all these independent regional stations that have just tuned in and welcomes them one by one, having already welcomed uh, our overseas viewers, including the Americans. Um, yeah. Ornament, absolute ornament that's of the game. And it's one thing Matt Thompson will never get right. You know, it's another reason he will never rise to the level of the great man is his is <laughs> refusal to welcome people from various locations around the world and around Dungog that may be listening to this broadcast. Now, how many it people could have been so watching funny. this from Dungog? It could only be a, like, it, if all of them watched it at this time, it could only have possibly been around a thousand people tuning into that station. Yeah. So he welcomes the UK, Canada, US. Uh, he says the US is on, is watching on cable. Mm. And then just starts listing yeah. all of these NBN affiliates in the Upper Hunter that have just joined the broadcast. So I don't know what, yeah. why they don't. And yeah, he says Scone, Merry War, and Dungog. And he's like, not only saying the towns, but like NBN 1 in Scone, NBN 3 in Dungog, all this kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. It's astonishing. It's one of his best ever. It's right up there with, uh, I've had some correspondence through the week from some Japanese viewers uh, in the, yeah. the 99 <laughs> draft final, which I think yeah. still is maybe just, just does this. But yeah. And the yeah. East Timor, he calls the, the welcoming of the East, the East Timor oh, Brigade. The when we were, when we, yeah, yeah, the peacekeepers. Right. When we were, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Bill yeah. Anderson, meanwhile, takes the opportunity to say, uh, I've got a message for Fiona Webster. Her father, Bill, sends his best from Toronto, Canada. It's so funny. It just wouldn't happen now, like really personal welcomes. For one um, person. For one person on air. Um, if we're about That's to quite start nice, game, in fairness, it's quite lovely. Like, oh, you know. No, totally, but it just wouldn't. I don't think they'd let you do it now. I don't think no, you could just get on at the grand, like Joey Johns could get on the grand final call for nine and just say, G'day to someone, like to yeah. someone randomly, <laughs> you know. Um, but look, aside um, from that, if we're about to talk about the game, there's a couple of things yeah. just about the lineups I wanted to quickly mention for you. Yes. Um, and this, I, I think, uh, basically two things. Firstly, the Canterbury side has five future first grade rugby league coaches playing. Which I just thought you'd like to know, um, which would be Andrew Farrar, Terry Lamb, Michael Hagen, Folks, and Langmack. Yes. Um, all of yeah. whom coach, specifically all of whom make it to coaching in the NRL era as mm-hmm. well. Um, so not only do they coach, they, given when this game is played, like you think, that, you know, some of them could have ended up coaching in the 90s or something, which they do, but they all actually make it to the live era of the um, NRL post-98 as, as coaches. Um, That's true. I thought That's that you would want that noted. And there's two premiership-winning coaches, of course, in there, in, cool. in Folks and, and Hagen. Of course. Um, That's just a lot of coaches it is. to be playing in one team, isn't it? Because there's only, there's only 13 on the field, and, and five of them end up coaching. And there, there are a few coaches like that. The, the WOC seems to have created – a lot of coaches played mm. under the WOC. A lot of coaches play under um, – Tim Sheens, off the Jeez. top of my head, I think, has a lot. Um, yeah, that camera side's got a heap of coaches. Yeah, it's um, got got an absolute stack of them. And I, I think without having checked, um, I, I suspect there's quite a few under Brian Smith over the years. Um, I, 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 that's just, I, I don't have that sort of list, but I know he coached a long time, so that might be obvious, but I feel like he did seem to have a bit of a, 
a list of disciples that some of them seem to learn a lot from these guys, whether they get on with them or not. Um, and they seem to develop a lot, a, a lot of coaches. Just for an example, you don't see someone like a Wayne Bennett, I, I would think by virtue of having coached so many players probably does have a few coaches now, but in terms of percentages and looking at that, there seems to be many less people coming out of playing for him and going on to head coach than seem to in a very short period, the walk was able to just, create a lot of coaches um and that's sort of good or a bad thing it's just interesting that some yeah. coaches style seems to have developed other people into picking a lot of that up or, or wanting to get into it or whatever else and others don't have that same impact um yeah i should actually run the i should run the team sheets out quickly while we're while we're yep. talking about this you're quite right uh the Parramatta team is as follows fullback paul taylor wings mick delroy and eric growth centers michael cronin steve ella the halves, Brett Kenny and Peter Sterling. The forwards, Ray Price at lock. John Muggleton and Mark Laurie in the second row. Terry, Le- uh, Terry Leibeter and Jeff Bugden in the front row. Michael Mosley at hooker. Peter Wynn off the bench. Uh, it was thrilling to see Peter Wynn come on in the 52. And uh, footy show mm. producer Tony Chalmers on in 18, come on in the second too. half. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd only ever seen yeah. him before. It's like the only on... producers. <laughs> yeah. I know, I'd only ever seen him before coming on to bail out the fat man during an episode of the footy show when things were going south, like things had gone wobbly. He would come on and put yeah. something on the run sheet, you know? Yeah, or well, the fire extinguisher he came on with a few times. He's the only producer of any show I ever know because the, yeah, the fat man would mention Tony Chalmers running on. Um, yeah. in, the, in the 52, was well, I'm glad you mentioned that. That was, that was something that was going to make my list, so I'm very glad you've, you've brought that up. That playing in 52 in the grand final is elite. It's heroic. I've seen 40s in the grand final. I've never seen 52. Uh, meanwhile, for Canterbury, fullback Phil Sigsworth, wings Andrew Farris, Steve O'Brien, centres Michael Hagen and Chris Mortimer, the halves Terry Lamb and Steve Mortimer. Uh, the lock is Paul Langmack, second row Steve Folks and Paul Dunn. This is just the nastiest pack of forwards in human history, by the way. Paul Langmack mm. at lock is like the least sort of nasty out of all of them, I think. Steve Folks and mm. Paul Dunn in the second row. Peter Kelly and Peter Tunks in the front row, Mark Bugden at hooker, and a bench of David Boyd and Jeff Robinson. Uh, sensational. Yep, it is. A um, couple of things on, on that one quickly. It's that Langmack is in his third grand final at the age of 21, I think, which bears yeah. mentioning. Um, he thankfully leveled that out by signing for the second half of his career at Western Suburbs, which sort of, um, made sure that he was able to even this out over time. But it's quite yeah. an incredible run there. And, and David Boyd uh, warrants a, a mention here, a very big mention, because um, you know, you, you've personally uh, made sure we mention whenever we have crushes playing, but we have a Western Red playing in this screen final Uh, David Boyd after he's an original Newcastle Knight and played very well for the Knights and in the early years but he uh goes on and one of the original they used to call him the Bash Brothers back then with him and Tony Butterfield so after uh, leaving the Knights very very late on he ends up playing for both the uh, 95 and 96 Reds so two things on that firstly I think it's worth always noting when we have a Western Red playing particularly in 1986 but um also there is there are Newtown Jets in this game so yeah. we, we put ourselves in a situation where we have defunct Jets who are very early in the piece playing with defunct Western Reds players who don't come into the competition for a good, like, uh, 12 years after the Jets don't exist. So we have here, I, I would like to have a lineage. I, I think we could do this. They talk about how you can get from one player who played with a player who played with a player and get all the way through to m- modern times with very few. I'd like to link through what defunct club 
player played with what defunct club player all the way from 1908 to now. Yeah, um, you could so, start. So you, you could eventually... sort of, you could start off <laughs> yeah. with Frank Burge and go from there. Yes, that, that's right. And and eventually you find it only took you say six players or something to get to an Adelaide Ram. Um, from, from the Frank from Birch. Lee, like that, yeah. that's what I'd like to know. Yeah, so that, that is it is it is an interesting time, right? Because you've got this like to have so it just seems so bizarre that someone who played in the cash converters Western Reds jersey is mm. playing with someone who played for the like the Paramount Newtown Jets here. And and I suppose the other the other part of that I just want to mention was the incredible longevity of it. Just hit me watching this game how many fucking players Terry Lamb must have played with because Terry <laughs> Lamb like you're looking at him and you're like Terry Terry Lamb played with Dallas Donnelly and like played here and he's run like played in the Victor and stuff and is running around in like he makes his comeback in midway through 1996 yeah. having like waltzed out you know like. Um, having won a comp in 95 and retired and then come back, that Terry Lamb must have, if you look at who played Terry Lamb played against, right, in, say, 95 or 96, like your young Darren Lockyer types and stuff like that, and then backtrack to who he played with at, like, in the Dallas Donnelly sort of era Mm. of the Western Suburbs, the amount of sheer players he must have played with and against is just, I wouldn't be surprised if in the early 80s he played against someone who played in the 60s or something and he's ended up playing against Darren Lockyer. Um, yeah, you know, in 1995. Just, he debuts um, in 1980. Just, um, yeah. Yeah, debuts in 1980 and finishes in 96. Uh, I reckon in, some level. in Yeah. I reckon in 1980 he'd have played against someone who might have played in 69 or something like that. So he'd have played against someone who played 1960s football and has then subsequently played with Darren Lockyer. Which is just... Uh, yeah. 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 It, it, it's just... I don't know that there's, you know, Cameron Smith might come close and stuff, but everyone in the modern era feels so different because the game hasn't changed the same way in modern times. The game in Cameron Smith's lifetime didn't change in the way the game played back then. The increase in the coverage, the increase in money and and the exposure on TV, the professionalism and everything that came into it, the game changed so rapidly. It just seems so incredible, the errors that Terry Lamb would spin in terms of players. He, He could go and have a drink with a guy he played with or against from that played in the sixties and then go play against someone who played in the twenty ten just just remarkable. He's like a, <laughs> really he, is. He's, he's like a Galapagos. He's like a Galapagos tortoise, Terry Lamb. He just it's just, yeah. Just it's just the world. <laughs> the, the yeah. world has changed yeah. around him. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he's a, But but the value of support play never did. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's absolutely right. You still got to back up, no matter what, no matter yeah. how fast the game is or anything like that. You've yep. still got to back up. Uh, we should we should possibly talk about some football, I suppose. Yeah, if you want. Yeah, if yeah, I suppose. <laughs> um, the, there is a there is a break in the first minute of the game from Parramatta's ten meter line, in which mm. uh, Kenny breaks away and puts uh, Steve Eller away to halfway. And you think, hang on, we could be on here. This could be quite entertaining. How did this end up driveless? Uh, but it becomes clear pretty quickly. Uh, the first missed penalty goal from Mick Cronin uh, happens in the fifth minute. Uh, mm. They they point out that he's hitting them at forty six point four percent for the season since coming back from the detached retina. Uh, yeah, just a couple, just quickly. I, I, you yeah. have skated over something that I thought had to be raised, oh, um, yes. and I accept that because I think it has to be raised. Oh, sorry, I know what this is. I think I know what this is, and I've missed it in my notes. Do yeah. go on, uh, Andrew Farrah. Was it Andrew Farrah for you? Um, so so what I'm going to get at here, Andrew Farrah has a kick for touch. Um, for Canterbury early in this game before the first penalty goal, right? Yeah. And he's standing 
uh, let me paint you the picture. It's about 15 metres in from the right-hand touchline. Yep. And he gets the ball and he looks at the touchline. Oh, yes. Eyes yes. it up. Eyes up the touchline, 15 metres in. Then for some reason, something twigs in his brain that this narrow angle means he won't get that much sort of, you know, when you're a bit close to the sideline, you can't kick it that far. Just so, so the he turns around. I understand. Gazzy is on the Zoom call. He's standing up demonstrating this to me. And yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, do go on. Yeah, well, well you can see. Turns yeah. around. He just has this light bulb moment of why don't I kick it out the other way? So he turns around, aims for the long sideline, miles to get this yeah. better angle to kick it further, and subsequently misses touch by at least 20 metres. Like, it's caught in the old, like, using the modern sort of look at it, he would have, the, the, the Parramatta winger catches it inside the markings that they would have for the 20 metre line, like for the actual yeah. metre lines where it's just 20 line. He's 15 metres infield. He misses touch by so far, and... Was always going to because, it, like Ted said, would have to like you would have to get a Matt Burton torpedo to have kicked it that far to get it out. The other it's thing that stunned kick. me about this, you're right. Mm. And the other thing that stunned me about it is that um, it's at the cricket ground where you don't know where you are. So not only is he kicking for this enormous on this enormous side, but he doesn't even. It's actually quite difficult to tell where the touchline is because there's another thirty meters of field to the left of it, right? Mm. Um, so the dimensions of the pit, yeah, it, 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 it was stunning. I, he, um, it, it is the most ambitious kick for tar- penalty kick I think I've ever seen. Oh, uh, Neil all in a grand final of all things, like it's, it's yeah. mental. It's um, the Cronin penalty. Uh, I think it, it is worth noting that that is twenty five meters out in front, um, yes. and albeit hitting them at forty six percent, I still think he was entitled to kick that. Um, it's and just as a little aside, it's easy. Uh, people will because Mick Cronin's a very popular player. Um, yes. Will def- you know probably have a go at me for criticising his goal kicking and it was different times and everything else. Just as a comparator, we do later find out that Terry Lamb's kicking at sixty eight point eight percent for the season, and I raise that because whilst that's not ideal, it is substantially higher than missing over half of them, um, and suggests that he is at least kicking ones that are adjacent to the posts most of the time. Um, if, if Mick Cronin came back, it's, it's, I'd love to know who was doing the goal kicking for Parramatta while Mick Cronin was out, because if he didn't play until round 17, it's, it's yeah. interesting that they gave him the kicking duties back when he came back with blurred vision, um, because it seems to me that um, you might think oh. about leaving whoever was doing it. And I'm, again, I'm not. this is uh, not a criticism of Mick Cronin, because if he couldn't see the goalposts and was like having trouble seeing, then maybe there is an argument that he had some excuse here. But... It seems like they had a few different kickers. Yeah, uh, I've got it up now too. Over the course yeah. of the season, they had uh, they had Neil Hunt take some goals. They had Mike Eden take some goals. The Zip Zip Man took a few. Graham Atkins. So it seems yeah. as though they had some guys brought in who didn't end up playing in '86, uh, who did the job, which might go yeah. some way to explain. John Muggleton kicked three goals in 1986 as well. I'd love to have seen John like Muggleton see lining a few up. Um, yeah. Yes. Um, so just just on Cronin. Um, can I look? Come on, because he he goes on to kick none. For, he goes on to be none from two with an a, a, a miss. We'll we'll get to, but let's just get to it now because I don't think much happens in between them. No, it doesn't. He gets an absolutely atrocious miss right in front. Like um, he's about twenty out this time, and he shanks it almost below the crossbar and to the left by uh, to the his left the the right if you're behind the post by quite a distance. Like absolutely yeah. shanks it. It barely gets off the ground. It, it doesn't go high. It doesn't go straight. It doesn't go anywhere. And Look, we say a lot of nice things about old players on this podcast. Um, and 
I'm going to get hammered for putting this out there because I'm not just going to refine it. I'm not going to restrict myself to goal kicking here. Is that Mick Cronin is considered an ornament of the game and, and one of them, this man is rugby league and everything else. So he must have been good. But yes. all I'm going to say is I've now watched two games with him in it and I have seen absolutely no evidence of any reason why he's considered to be good. And I know I, I get it. I'm going to get hate mail, but you are. I'm just, yeah, but you have to say what you see is that I've watched two games with him in it now. And he was an appallingly bad goal kicker who nearly cost him the game in both that we've watched. You know, he missed the, he you missed know, the goal to yes. win it in 77. Yes, yeah. th- that's right. So he's essentially nearly cost them, like, he missed the goal to win it in 77. And he, he Canterbury score late, they win this when they shouldn't have because of his misses. If, if he'd kicked all these, it wouldn't have mattered if Canterbury scored late. So all, all I'm sort of putting on here is that I'm sure he must have been good. And I'm very happy. I would love Parramatta fans who can remember really good games he played to tell us some of them. And I'm very happy to watch them and be proven wrong because I'm not saying he wasn't good. I'm just saying I've only watched two games. They were both big games. And he, in both of them, he was very slow. Uh, didn't look like doing anything with the ball at any point and can't kick goals. So I would love to hear from people as to what he did over a long career in other games that I didn't see um, and didn't hear about. And I'm very open to watching those games and being proven wrong. But, but can you disagree fundamentally that in the two games we've watched, he hasn't done anything at all that suggested that he was any good? And if you watched them not knowing who he was, if we'd never, if we knew the sport but didn't know the history and you watched it, you would never have circled him as being, you would never have said, this guy looked like he was any good. Like this guy was good from watching what we've watched. What, what I would very diplomatically say <clears throat> is that uh, in the two games that we've watched at opposite ends of his career, uh, which are both grand finals that turn on goal kicking. He, he misses a lot of goal kicks, which is which is it seems counterintuitive because he's remembered primarily as this great goal kicker, as this kind of golden boot of this Parramatta side that powered them to these wins. Mm-hmm. Um, he he misses in he, he misses in seventy seven to win them the game, which they subsequently uh, lose in a replay. And he, he misses a couple from, as you say, quite right in front. I'm prepared to give him, like, I'm giving a pass on this because it sounds like he was not exactly in his best fettle and probably oughtn't have been kicking. But, um, yeah, he misses from 25 in front, 25 out in front. And then they, like, a couple of plays later, they, uh, or shortly after that, they break, Parramatta break back upfield, get up there again. And he misses from 10 out in front. And that is an absolute stinker, that one. Like, it comes arrowing off the side of his boot. Uh, so, yeah, look, I think that's... I mean, we've had the same thing about Mal Meninga, right? Like, you watch individual games. We've watched a few mm. games with him in it where he doesn't do much. And you go, geez, what was all the fuss about Mal Meninga, you know? And again, I mm. always think the same thing. There must be something. There must have, He must have had days. He throws a beautiful pass for one of the Kenny No tries, which we'll come to Mick Cronin. He I does throw a good pass well. there. No, he, um, he does. I just, I haven't... I'm yet to see something... That, that shows it. And, and there's a lot of other players where we've watched and it's become pretty obvious pretty quickly, even if they weren't the star of that game as to what they must have been like. There's just evidence of it. And, and yeah. you know, I'm sure there is with him too, but you've got to call, we're going to watch them. We've got to call it what you see. There you go. And there he you hasn't go. done anything. He has not done anything in either this game or the other grand final we've watched. Um, no, no, that's, that's fair enough. I, I, think that's, I think that's entirely <laughs> fair. You're not saying Mick Cronin wasn't any good and shouldn't be remembered well. To just, you know, he just didn't those those two particular games possibly not the best sample. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we're mm. gonna get I think we're gonna get death threats for this, but that's okay. Um oh, that's all right. That's these all right. are the risks you've got to go to. If you're gonna if you're gonna put yourself out there, you've got to, you know, yeah. you've got to be prepared yeah. to take you've got to be prepared to take the lumps. Uh the other thing which I thought you were going to mention is that uh, Graham Hughes 
who is providing some expert comments to assist Rabs, uh, uh, says unbiasedly, thankfully, yeah. thankfully, yes, mm. uh, speculates that it sh- he reckons it's about a six to eight point breeze, uh, <laughs> which is an interesting uh, view because they're only six points in the whole game. So, um, and had only been sort of ten points in any grand final for the last couple of years. So, um, make it that one. Mm. But yeah, six to eight. Well, point. I know it, you love. I know you love putting points on a breeze. So I thought you would. Well, we still we still do it. But listeners will be thrilled to know that you know uh, Morgan and I, who you know go to every night's home game and quite a few other games, and we'll in fact be going later today to watch Newcastle Knights game. I always ask him how many points I think is in the breeze, and often when it's not windy at, at all. <laughs> um, so you know we get times where he possibly only puts half a point to one on it, and there's times where you know in rare circumstances of a bit of a, a bit of a gale blowing, he's been known to put twelve plus on the breeze. And, and we yeah. do engage in that chat regularly and will be later today as well. Um, and we encourage all of you to, to do the same. Whenever you're at a game of football, turn to the bloke next year that you've gone with and say, how many points you're well, even, even if you haven't gone yeah. with someone, turn to someone you don't know and say, oh, listen, how many reckons on this breeze today? That's Great conversation to... starter. Absolutely. Yeah. A way to meet people, absolutely, in these times yeah. of isolation. The rugby league speed dating. Well, <laughs> that's absolutely right. <laughs> now, uh, in the 15th minute, uh, Andrew Farrar, who we have mentioned, uh, possibly mm. still smarting from his his, his failed kick for touch, mm. uh, flattens Mick Delroy with one of the most brutal swinging arms to the head I have ever seen. Delroy is Murder. absolutely mm. senseless. He's like spread out like a fried egg on the touchline getting treatment. Um, mm. Takes a, a full set to get back up and on his feet and into the line inexplicably stays on and inexplicably Andrew Farrah stays on. Now I've done this many times on this podcast. If that happened today, what would be the outcome? Um, or, or he'd be sent off and he would get uh, over six weeks because um, yeah. it's like bordering on not being reckless and being intentional to use the modern legal terminology of yeah. um, places. It does seem quite intentional. Um, the touch judge would also be sacked probably forever because it, it happened it's this is a, a, like a winger on winger um mm-hmm. down the sideline on and it, it happens the touch is in perfect position standing so close that he would be capable if he chose to of leaning out and actually touching the players that's how close it happens to him mm-hmm. um i'm not exaggerating it's right there he clobbers him it never goes below the shoulder it starts high finishes high uh ray warren suggests God without seeing him. the replay yet that it might have bounced up off the shoulder or come off off the shoulder which is elite chat uh, it didn't, and, and no. I think even Rabs backtracked slightly from that position on afterwards. And, and look, when you say what would happen today, I'll tell you one thing that wouldn't happen today. They wouldn't leave him spread-eagled on his back like a starfish on the ground being treated whilst packing the scrum about 10 metres in field from oh, him with, with, like, defenders on the blind side and everything. So, like, if the scrum was won by the Bulldogs, they had every chance of actually going blind to where he was knocked out cold trampling back over him and, and they yeah. had to reset the scrum a couple of times and the game just goes on with you can see him we'll try and get us we'll try and get a screen grab of it it's unbelievable. You, it, it, in, it, it looks so um out of place now it, it's funny how things change I, I used to say this during the covid restrictions you'd be watching a tv show and see people shaking hands or hugging and you go oh, what are they doing that for it looked like such a different time and there's an element of that to this where you're watching as a, as a fan who watches rugby league, even though I did watch it probably when some of this still happened a little bit, I'm so conditioned now to taking this so seriously that watching them pack the scrum and keep playing and all of this happen while this guy is spread eagled like a starfish on his back on the ground, out absolutely motherless 
on the ground just looks so you're like oh that just doesn't look like that should be ha-. like what what are they doing this doesn't look like that should happen but nobody comments on it like it's not there's no you, you know what I mean look there's no Ray Warren's not going what are they doing like because that just Ooh. was accepted then we'll, we'll try and get a grab of it because it just looks so Oh, that's unbelievable, doesn't and, it? it, it, it and, and, and you've just you've just said what would happen today would be a send off and six weeks suspension. plus, but, but at yeah. least yeah. Um, just to, just so listeners are clear, what actually happened uh, is that uh, Mick, the, the touchy put his flag up, uh, and there was no penalty in Canterbury because because Del mm. put his flag up because Delroy got into touch and Canterbury had a scrum feed. Yeah, it's just totally it's ignoring no, the no, fact that he no went into penalty. touch because his head had been taken off cold, like like removed from his body. Not even a um, penalty. Play on, lads. Like the no, boys play. No. Extraordinary. Uh, yeah, just extraordinary. Uh, when you say what would happen today, and we'll get to some of them later on, but what would happen today is that this ended up, could have possibly ended up a double forfeit because <laughs> the amount of, like, and you you wouldn't have been able to just have an 18th man to cover out people ironed out of the game from concussion. I think there's possibly, like, been so few players left on the field that, that, that neither team could field a side. I tell you what, um, it, wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been 4 2, it would have been like the World Sevens. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine, like, the amount of people? Imagine some of the people sitting the the, the scat test or whatever they call it, like at half time in this one, where you're getting Ray Price on there asking who the prime minister is and all this sort of stuff. You'd be in massive trouble. Half the team, oh. like both sides, at Canterbury were particularly violent, um, but I don't think Parramatta were, were squeaky clean either. There'd be a lot of people uh, going for head assessments and not oh, coming back. It's just madness. It, it, it is. There's yeah. so many things like this. Um, I think the ideal would be a concussion error with a Tuesday replay for, for a draw, which was still on the table at this stage. Because yeah. if this game had been drawn, um, you would have had about a lot of people sitting out the mandatory six-day period. Well, it would have been, <laughs> like a, back. It would have been yeah. the result. It would have almost been reserved. Yeah. Great a lot of people playing in the 55, 54, 55, oh. 56 in the starting team. Yeah, Delroy, uh, Delroy stays on, by the way, and plays the whole game. Never looks particularly healthy, but stays on. It's, it's extraordinary. I probably never looked healthy again. It's oh, incredibly troubling. It really is. You do. With the stuff we know now it's mm. all glorified and like they are tough as hell like there's no but you can there's a duality to this because it's incredibly tough and you can admire how tough you must be to stay on but yeah. it's incredibly troubling at the same time it's not like watching people stay on with a even you know a broken jaw or a broken, broken whatever like, or something, the, yeah. no 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 because it's so it, the fact that what we know can happen now it's it is incredibly troubling to yeah. see them just get up and get on with it um, yeah, absolutely. It's not, he, it's, not, he, it's not right. Yeah, and he looks really, he, he looks really staggery for most of the game, Delroy. And, yeah, I mean, would you? Oh, oh, like, like, yeah, of course, of course. He, yeah. he gets absolutely clobbered. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah he, gets, he gets absolutely clobbered. Now we have come to the first of the two. Now, when people talk about this game, one of the things that they always highlight is Brett Kenny had not one but two tries disallowed. Uh, two tries in three consecutive grand finals, and then two disallowed tries in the fourth one. The first one is a grubber from Peter Sterling, twenty meters out. It bounces out, like erupts out of the ground like molten lava. I love. I, I talk about how tough this game was in some of the collisions. I don't know how hard the cricket ground was um, in nineteen eighty six. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, the ball! It's a grubber, which suddenly springs up to like crossbar height on one mm. of the bounces, uh, and Kenny comes through and ends up. It ends up an aerial. It's a grubber that ends up in an aerial. Um, What's the word I'm looking for here? Contest for the ball. Mm. Uh, Kenny goes up above Sigsworth, comes down with it, looks to have scored from the back angle. Referee says no try. There's a suggestion that he might have just fumbled it as he went down to the ground. It's pretty close. It's a it's a pretty close one. 
Good call. I reckon if you watch it from front on, he drops it. it the the yeah. back angle looks like he put it down, but yep. you can't go with the angle that looks like he got it down when there's one that looks like he didn't because you can't mm. fake the looking like he didn't. One angle does look like he scored, and if you stilled that one and put it up, everyone would say he got robbed. But that that was a really – I think live, that's a really good call because I'm pretty sure he fumbled it on look of a replay, um, and I think if you put that in the modern era, that's no they're going to no try that. Um, yep. And it happened right. at pace at a quick time too. Like it was all happening really quickly. A lot of bodies around. So it was a pretty good decision. Tell you what, he doesn't muck around, Mixstone. A lot of these decisions, and there's one later on, which is particularly noticeable how quickly he makes yeah. the decision, but he doesn't muck around. Yeah. Um, no. He sees it and goes. Uh, mm. <clears throat> a 6-3 penalty count, by the way, after 28 minutes, uh, Parramatta 6, Canterbury 3 for the penalties, which gives you some idea mm. of what sort of game it was. The middle of the ground, by the way, is just an absolute mud heap. Um, mm. You know what else I noticed is that you know cricket grounds, and I mean you're a you're a, a club cricketer. That mm. you know those underground storage holes they have on cricket grounds with the plastic yeah. top. They had those yeah. on the cricket ground where they're playing the grand final. It's insane, isn't Did it? Did you notice this? Like cover them up. Yeah, I thought that was unbelievable. There were two of them in in yeah. close proximity with the plastic. God Almighty, you wouldn't want to go face first into one of them, um, nor would you want to uh, go kidney first into a knee drop. Uh, from Peter Kelly, which is what happens to, to Lee Peter in the 30th minute. Um, that looks extremely sore. Um, mm. Rab speculates that he may have been hit in the left or the right kidney. Um, but, uh, <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he goes down and he looks extremely unwell. It's an awful incident. Uh, and then Bugden, uh, that is the, the, the Parramatta Bugden, uh, that is Jeff Bugden, uh, possibly the only grand final, or I suppose 84 might have as well, with two Bugtons on opposite sides. But uh, he ducks under a wild swinging arm from Steve Folks, which again, if it had connected, mm. um, would have knocked him in the next week. I, I have to, I, before we get on to the, the, the real drama of the first half, I have to say, I find the camera angles for this game, and I think I've complained about this before, so disorienting because we are so used to having a camera that is in line with the play mm. at all times. And what we have here is cameras pitched on like the 20 meter line and the halfway line and all this kind of stuff. And I have no idea where they ever are on the field. No, no, me either. I'm trying to work out. You see, I, I was using the mud as a guide because the mud was all in the midfield. And if it was, if it was dry, then like if it was green, they were possibly down the end of the field. And if it was like a mud heap, yeah. it was somewhere in the middle. It's really yeah. hard to get your bearings on whether they're mm. on the attack or whether they're in their own half, especially because the football very rarely changes. They're sort of just rucking it up wherever they are on the field. Yeah. But, yeah, extraordinary. Uh, the 37th minute is uh, a dramatic moment because Peter Kelly is sin-binned. Uh, I'm going to go to you again here for a modern-day view on this, but uh, to, to, to set it out for people at home, Ray Price takes a run. He's held up by Farrah. Uh, Peter Kelly uppercuts him in the head right in front of the touch judge. Uh, the touch judge this time does come in. Same touchy mm. who allowed the Farrah thing to happen. Uh, touchy does come in, sends Kelly. Uh, the referee sends Kelly for 10 minutes in the sin bin. Now, this, am, I, am, I, am I overselling this? This is just an uppercut to the face, isn't it? Yeah, and it's second man in. So the first person makes the tackle and he runs in as if he's going to tackle him. He doesn't punch him in the play the ball or toe-to-toe man-to-man. Yeah. Man. He comes in as if he's going to tackle him, but he just it's not a swinging arm, it's punch. Like he comes in, yeah. sees him Whack. held by the other person and punches him as an uppercut to the face. So, yes, he uh, he's probably should have been sent off. It wasn't – and uh, it might have 
tried to disguise it as it even I mean it's pretty if you're trying to disguise a punch as a swinging arm which is also illegal it sort of tells you that it's pretty bad but that that's the best you could say is it was he was trying to make it look like a swinging arm only when it was actually an intentional sort of punch to the face yeah uh, or jaw and yeah it's a hell of a play mitigation that. isn't it it's a hell of a mitigation totally but but yeah. that's all you could say right at yeah. its best was it not a swinging arm but at its worst he was uppercutting in the face uh, yeah, that that would be uh, straight referred to the judiciary, and he wouldn't play again. Uh, whatever, you know, for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's the second incident like this, and I know I'm not doing this blithely. I, I have something. I think we're going to come to something later on, which makes all of this quite relevant. But I'm just going to leave that there. Uh, at, towards half time, there is a lot of concern from the commentators that Canterbury haven't used the eight point breeze, six to eight point breeze, well enough. Um, because mm. Parramatta have spent so much time in the Canterbury, in the Canterbury half. Well, but I mean, like, the game is not completely imbalanced. It's not completely Parramatta's, but they certainly have the better of it. Uh, and finally, yeah. yeah. Uh, and finally, oh, by the way, just on the Kelly thing, before I move on from that, Rabs says, oh, well, that uh, it's an unfortunate tackle, but it wasn't very savage from Kelly. So I don't know what else Peter Kelly used to do on rugby league fields, but if that was considered not very savage, I, I shudder to think. Uh, right on half time, Parramatta win a scrum against the feed. That's enough to bring a tear to the eye on, on its own, right near the Canterbury line. Paul Langmack gives away the second of his absolutely blatant penalties for obstructing in the ruck. And this mm. time, much tougher kick from Mick Cronin. Uh, 15 in from touch puts it over on the stroke of half time to uh to go two nil in front and Parramatta go into half time at two nil. You gotta wonder why Ray Price backed him to kick that. Incredibly harder than the ones he missed. Yeah, it's uh, funny that they decided I, I know it was it. close to half time, I suppose. Um they might not have thought they had time to put a try on, but um it uh yeah, I, I don't think I'd have been putting much money on him kicking that. Good kick. No, it was a cracker. He really mm. he throws it, sends it over uh, from a similar spot to his uh, his miss in seventy seven. Actually, Rabs does point that mm. out, although he does suggest it was seventy six. But even so, um, mm. yeah, two nil. What I wrote in my notes at half time is that was a profoundly disorienting experience. <laughs> that's and about that, right. That's all I can really say about the first half of that game. It's so it's hard to explain how little foot how little attacking football was played. Um, there's, yeah, there's right. more, the second half is better. The first half is absolutely dogged and uh, and, and 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 nasty and and hard, and there is not a lot of flair about it. Uh, It'd be interesting with your talk of how '87 burst out with different mm. football. There's there's a long period of time where the referees didn't enforce; they basically stopped enforcing the five meter rule. Uh, before the five meter rule is actually removed from the game, and I wonder, I wonder, if, and I'm not saying it was, and some older people than us might be able to disprove this, but I'd be interested just as a theory to look at if we went back and had a look about when that started to happen and when they started, and whether some of this football, because you know, you, you look at today, and if there, every year there's a new rule that Valandi's never bringing to address a problem, and I yeah. wonder if the if the if the administration at that point thought they wanted to see a few more tries and a bit more of this, and that maybe the referees started to get a bit deeper um, and give a bit more space than they did, than they were in this peak Bulldogs era. Um, it's only a hypothesis, but it is around the time the five metres starts to be less um, significantly enforced. And, and that might be, that might be a reason um, for that. I, one, one other thing on the football, this is a total thought 
bubble I had, but if you'll yeah. indulge me on it, was just I was looking at the hookers in the game um, and how they don't, you know, the, I think hooker is the position outside of, well, even as, as much as hooker and wing are the two positions that have changed the most over time in yep. that wingers now look nothing like wingers used to, but, but hookers, um, but they still finish tries and they're still fast, right? But hooker is a completely different position. Like the hookers now, um, quick, Haiti halves and stuff basically are so far removed from what we saw back then. And and I wonder if one of the big reasons for that was the five meter rule. Um, and and you don't really see quick hookers come in till Benny Elias comes in when they start to not really enforce the five meters as much. And then once the nineties take hold and there is the proper 10 meter rule, you start to see them. And I wonder if just when there was less space, if you look in a game like this, um, Parramatta's hooker has quite a good tough game and it, under this sort of conditions there's probably much more value in having a third front rower as long as they're a serviceable passer yeah. than there would be in, in having say Craig Wing um, I don't know how much Craig Wing would have helped Parramatta here with five metres of space um, yeah, I don't know that you'd have that wanted... pace is so much less valuable than when you've got 10 metres to cover and, and that sort of thing and in this sort of game uh, I wonder if that was the catalyst for really changing the position that once you got that extra space, the, the fact of them needing someone who's quick became so much more quick off the mark became so much more important than it ever had before. And, and, and this is just the sort of game that shows, I guess that how it just wouldn't have been much use to have that sort of player, right. No, in that position. No, that's then. right. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's yeah. It, there's no space for them to operate. You just need a people who, mm who could get their legs going and make ground, you know, the, yeah, yeah. In, in the contact and things. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, tackle like they're like another forward and all that sort of stuff. And mm, yeah, we've said that the first half is there's not a lot of football. Well, the second half starts with one of the great no tries mm. in grand final, in grand final history. Um, and this is a, this is a famous moment in the game and there is a lot to it. They're 10 short of halfway. Sterling, gets it at first receiver, wraps around Kenny, hits Cronin. Cronin goes flat into the contact and throws a lovely pass to Growth on about halfway. Growth gets past Mortimer, who's coming across in cover. But Mortimer's slowed him down, and Growth kind of slips over, takes a minute, gets back up. He shrugs off the fullback. And then Mortimer again comes across. Uh, oh no! Sorry, hang on, hang on. Let's let's that's, that's not right. Uh, he, he shrugs off the fullback. Growth is on his way, then passes to Brett Kenny because Mortimer is coming across again in cover, and then Kenny beats Folks. Farrah meets him on the line. Kenny falls just short and then promotes them all over the line. And Mick Stone immediately says, "No, no, we're not having any of that. That's a double movement, no try." It is a fantastic bit of play. Uh, it is a lot of good footballers doing things, but the thing that jumps out to me the most about this is that Steve Mortimer makes a tackle on Eric Growth, which is enough to slow him down, gets up and tackles the same player again. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like tough football. Yeah. It's it's a real mark on him. It's a wonderful bit of play. Sterling is fantastic in this. It's all Sterling. The the runaround play that he sets up is fantastic. It's nice hands from Cronin. It's everything that... Eric Growth is talked about 
Like yep. it's bump off. Like he bumps, bump off, bump off um, in a play that no other winger then would have been able to do. Um, he gets rid of two in that play and it could have been shut down twice. It isn't shut down either of those times. Um, and Kenny, uh, yeah. It, right, by the way, important to say it's the correct call again. He does re-promote football. It is, it is a double movement. Um, but it was a wonderful attacking play out of nowhere from from around halfway or so even. It was quite a way mm. out. Um, and, yeah, it, it's, again, it goes back to what I said at the start about Canterbury's, the effort from Canterbury um, is that they they did stop, you know, that, that first one where Kenny knocks on, he only knocks it on because they get there as well and they make it a contest and there's bodies around the ball. This one is only saved because Mortimer gets back there. So it, it's... Um, they kept themselves in this game and gave them a chance to basically what would have been stealing it, in my view, late because of this sort of stuff. They just kept not letting him score. They, they could have lost this game by three tries comfortably. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And comfortably. Mortimer, like, yeah. he just – it's one of the things about this game is because it's so tight, you don't actually get to see a lot of the skill of some of these players that are remembered, these halves mm. and like Sterling and Mortimer and all this. What you see instead is the tenacity of them and the, and, and and it's – and the will and the character of some of these blokes, mm. like Mortimer, for example, he just that that effort that he makes. It's not really like it's not his job as the halfback. Yeah. He's he's there to set up tries and get the team around the park, and yet he's just throwing himself around to stop tries. And you see it from a, a few of the different players. <clears throat> Brett Kenny falls on a lot of loose balls and um, tracks back to take kicks. Peter Sterling makes despairing tackles. All this kind of thing. It, it's um, yeah, you see as much of that as their actual skills and the things that they're best remembered for. But mm. it is no try and you're right, the arm carrying the ball hits the ground and then he puts it over the line. There's no complaint there. Uh, it actually reminded me a little bit of, uh, of Hasmel Masri in 2004, um, <laughs> a similar, similar kind of motion. Like, mm. um, but yeah. He, I, yeah. Uh, the 47th minute, Peter Kelly comes running back onto the field from the sin bin. I don't know if you got onto this. He just pushes one of the Parramatta officials out of the way. <laughs> Did you notice this? No, I didn't notice that. So the so there's a so he comes up the race. Peter Kelly comes up the race to run out, run back out, and there's some Parramatta official with a clipboard standing in the in the way of the gate. And Peter Kelly doesn't break stride; just shoves him and keeps running. <laughs> it's, it was quite quite extraordinary. The bike nearly falls over. Like he really gets hold of him. Uh, but we have seen a we we've just seen a kind of Peter Sterling, Eric Growth, Brett Kenny moment in the game uh, in about the 53rd minute we see a Steve Mortimer one where he pushes the dummy half out of the way, bursts up the middle of the park out of nothing from about halfway, kicks ahead Lord Ted Goodwin style uh, where only Eric Groth is back and Eric Groth has to come from the wing to get the ball uh, and he is fairly blatantly bundled over by Peter Sterling his opposite number as he chases his own kick uh, it's a penalty in front but I think I mean if that sort of thing happened now, I mean, Sterling would be in the bin, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it was so far out from the try line, the only thing. It was 30 yeah. metres away from the try line. They don't often like doing it. But, yes, he probably would have been in the bin. Um, beautiful bit of football. I actually oh, yeah. wrote in my notes that this half belongs to Mortimer. I thought he the, the, the back 30 minutes when they were desperate and needed something, he just comes to the fore and starts playing. Mercurial is right. I can see why that word was used for him. Um, it's also individual. He just starts doing really individual things. And it's a, it's a, I, I think it becomes obvious from watching this, why he had this rivalry with Sterlo, who, who is conducting Parramatta completely. They put on all these nice plays and he's getting them around the park and he's scheming and he gets his good players the ball. 
And then Mortimer's return to serve is all this individual stuff. Um, obviously a much better player with a much better career, Mortimer, than who I'm going to mention. But he, he reminds me the sort of football he's playing is very the best version of Mitchell Moses. It's the Ooh. individual stuff that when you watch Mitchell Moses, so much of the, like it's all running game and elusive running style and stuff that's not in the set plays. Like it's not Mitchell Moses's best football is never a pass off his hip to a second row in space or pressure with three dropouts in a row, three repeat sets in a row. It's always not, not much is happening. And Mitchell Moses beats people and, and Mortimer, in this game, everything he does that's good is individual. It's all him. And that's the reason I make the comparison. Um, And I suppose there's guys like Marshall and Johnson who are like that too, but certainly not with the step. You know, Mortimer didn't have that sort of footwork, but he gets out himself and is just making things happen with his own individual ability to play. And, And I can sort of see... The reason I say I sort of see where that rivalry developed is I think you would have times in their careers where, where you'd have Parramatta. Sturlow would always be playing to this level and always getting Parramatta around and always playing this football. And there was probably runs and periods of time in Mortimer's career where he'd have had a season or 10 weeks or whatever where this was just working every mm-hmm. week and, and highlight reel after highlight reel. And those would have been the years where they'd go, oh, who's going to be the New South Wales halfback? You know, Mortimer would just be in untouchable form and would get it or there'd be years where he was you know having a few quiet weeks where this just didn't come off or it might have rained for a month and he just couldn't do some of this and and Sturlow would have been coming through I just found it interesting to have two great halfbacks and rivals and you could see the difference in how they went about it in this game Sturlow's kicking for territory getting these guys onto the ball and having a really good game but Mortimer is grabbing it for Canterbury with just individual off the cuff stuff Mm. that is coming out of nothing and is not a plan and doesn't involve many other people a lot of the time does that is that a fair And it's remarkable, though. I mean, the the, the remarkable thing about it is that they were both existed at the same time and both came from Wagga, right? So Mortimer's born in 56, Sterlow in 60. Sterling, of course, born in Queensland, but moved to Wagga when he was fairly young and and played his kind of junior football there. Their careers are, when you put them side by side, are so alike in what they managed to achieve. Mm. Uh, Sterling, 18 tests, 13 origins. Mortimer, nine tests, nine origins, but seven interstate games before yeah. origin was a thing. So they've played a very similar amount of rep games. You can see how they, yep. how they crossed over and how they were back and forth for the, for the yes. positions. Um, and obviously Mortimer famously won it as, as captain in 84. But uh, yeah, it, the, you're right. There is a, they, they are both really significant in the game. And yeah, when you put it like that, Mortimer very much did do some individual things. And that, that moment was a cracker. There aren't many breaks like that in this game. You had to be pretty good to find no. space out there. Uh, yeah. And it does lead to Canterbury's only points of the game because Terry Lamb from the penalty puts the kick over. It's two all. And, uh, and we see a bit of leagues club footage from Canterbury leagues club, which was very exciting. You know, my views about footage from I the do. leagues club. There is something very important that I think we see Yes. Before the penalty goal, um, I'm hoping that, that you weren't going to skip past it. I, I was wasn't. a bit worried you were then, uh, which is, of course, the mic, the, the headphone <laughs> incident. Um, <laughs> so we might. So w- would you describe for our listeners what, what goes on here? Absolutely. Uh, so Steve Mortem has just done this kick, this, this break mm-hmm. and chip and chase, and Terry Lamb's teeing up the goal. There's a break in play. And as the kick is about to be taken, a trainer comes out with a set of headphones, puts them on with a headphones and a microphone, which is attached to like a walkie-talkie, puts it on Steve Mortimer's head and he has a chat to Wok who's wearing the corresponding headphones up in the grandstand 
I don't know what they talk about. Talking. Possibly still trying to talk him out of going to Manly. I don't know. But um, but yeah, yeah. Walk, it's it, it's a message from the coach directly to the halfback in the middle of the game. Now, if that, presumably that's illegal now. You wouldn't be able to do that now, I don't think, would you? Well, I think if it was legal, they'd be doing it. Yeah. Um, for starters, uh, if it was legal, they would be doing it. Um, it's wonderful the way Rabs goes, oh, the modern technology in rugby league, like the way he admires yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> whips it up. Um, it is good. I, I presume Wok was saying more of that, like just get out a dummy half, beat a few and chip and chase over the fullback. And if you do that for five more times, we'll win this game. Uh, but it, it's, I thought it was just remarkable. It was great to see, just great innovation from the Wok, again, showing uh, why he was such a, a beloved figure in the in the game for a long time. It's just, it is, it is, um, so funny when you see innovation that didn't take off. Like this isn't the early, this isn't an early mover of something that eventually no, happened. This it's is got just a real a random, yeah, like an aluminium cricket that's bat. That's exactly what right? I was about like, to it's say. Just, is it's got a real yeah, aluminium. To... Yes, I was. It's, yeah. it's got a real yeah. aluminium bat vibe about it. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's just something that got experimented with briefly that has subsequently been put in the trash can for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, is that presumably coaches do send a message through, not a walkie-talkie, but through um, whatever technology down to the sideline now to the trainer. And the, the the wonder is why even then you might not have thought the trainer could just pass the message on, like why Walk felt that he needed to directly. I mean, what well-known sort of uh, issues trusting others may well just not have trusted the trainers to pass the message <laughs> Communicate on. the message on. Yeah, probably. You've got no hope of telling him how to do this properly. Put me onto him. But it, it was yeah. good to see. I haven't seen anyone else do it. We've watched a lot of games and a lot of errors, and that's never happened any time other than it this caught year. me caught me absolutely off guard, I have to say. To yeah. See, running, yeah. The, running the walkie-talkie, running the, the headphones out. We'll put a picture of it up on the page. It's, it's quite – it, it, it is. It's bizarre. Uh Yeah. Now, so at this point, it's two all. So for all this talk of Canterbury wasting the breeze and they're under pressure and all this in Parramatta, because Graham Hughes in particular in the first half almost calls this for Parramatta at nil all. He just says, oh, no, they're, just, they're winning the territory too much. They, they can't, mm. they're, they're going to win this. They're setting up a victory here. And with 20 to go, it's, 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 it's two each, even yep. after everything. Um, but Ray Price is absolutely clocked on about 60 minutes by mm. David Boyd, who hangs an arm out. It's another piece of uh, physical mm. violence directed towards Ray Price. Uh, that leads to a penalty 20 out, which Mick Cronin yeah. puts over for 4-2. Um, it's worth noting he's now kicking above his season average at two from four. He's now <laughs> moved ahead. So for all my criticism of him, he didn't miss the big moments on the big day, moving right. ahead of his career. Sorry, he's a season long average of 46 or 48 or whatever it was, and now kicking them at 50% and stepping yeah. up under the heat of battle. Yeah. Uh, also, again, not to bang on about the Western Reds, but we do here have a Western Red knocking out Ray Price in a game. And I just think, again, <laughs> warrants mentioning yeah. that it just seems out of place that Ray Price has been clocked in the head by someone who played in the cash converters and Sunday Times Western Reds jersey. Yeah, and Ray Price, of course, having played in, say, the 76 grand final. Yes. Um, yeah. If you're talking about Span. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Uh, yes, so clocked by David Boyd. Penalty goal for Cronin, 4-2 with about 20 to go. Uh, we get this bizarre para chant that is like played over the top of the TV broadcast. Did you get onto this? Mm. Yeah, they I did, yeah. Para, dun, 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 like canned crowd noise over the top of the, the score when it comes up, which was very strange. At, a, at, a, at, at nominally a neutral grand final, like it's yes. not supposed to be a Parramatta home game. I don't think they did anything similar for the Canterbury goal. I don't remember seeing it. Mm. Uh, 
Now, this is probably the, that 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 moment, that goal sort of came after probably Canterbury's best period of the game. Uh, mm. There is a moment shortly after this where Terry Lamb slips when he looked at almost have the line wide open. Uh, he gets an ankle tap. I say slips, but he, he gets an ankle tap from Ray Price, who is outpaced but just does enough. He just reaches out the big despairing hand and, and clips him as he goes through and, and stops Terry Lamb from possibly scoring. But Parramatta turn it over. Uh, and then Parramatta turn it over on the 22 on last uh, up the other end. And shortly after this, Canterbury back on the attack. There is a grubber through. Brett Kenny sweeps in and picks it up, picks it up beautifully, I should say, just like the timing and the skill to pick the ball up is beautiful. Uh, and he is coat hanged by Phil Sigsworth. Uh, and it's an old fashioned coat hanger, some might say. It's a, say. a yeah. It's a, I don't know what, it, you can't call it a coat hanger without calling it an old-fashioned one. I don't know what a new-fashioned one looks like, but this very much is an old-fashioned one. Um, and it, it, it's, one of the great thing about rugby league fans is anyone who understands the game will now know what I am describing without having watched it, will know exactly what happened. Yeah. Like someone coming through at pace with a ball and an old-fashioned coat hanger stuck out, everyone knows what yeah. just happened. I don't need to say um, anymore. That's right. No, um, no. Now, you know in the cricket, in the sort of mid-2000s, they used to have that reaction time thing where yeah. like a catch at, at like yep. short leg or in the slips or the wicket keeper or something, they'd say like, what was his reaction time? How long did he have yep. to see the ball coming and take the catch? What do you think the reaction time was on Mick Stone here firing Sigsworth immediately? Oh. Not in a grand final, now I, I'm just, I'm just going to set the scene here. This is a grand final. We've had two, at least two in like extremely violent acts perpetrated uh, by uh, by players in the first half. Now, Sigsworth does absolutely coat hanger Brett Kenny. It is an old fashioned coat hanger, as you say, and it looks very dramatic. And Kenny flings back as people do when they're hit like this. I, it can't have been more than three or four seconds. No, as soon as it happens, as soon as he sends him, he sends him before Kenny hits the deck. Yeah, he's yeah, gone. Yeah. Seriously, as soon as he gets hit, he sends him. Um, I, I'm quick to add that I don't necessarily think it was long. It's very hard to argue with because it's it's pretty bad. Um, and it's in fact very similar to one that um, Will Kennedy did in the NRL this year of 2022, where he did get sent off. Um, and albeit different standards at the time, it, it, it's over time a really bad coat hanger has almost always been something that can get sent off because it's um. Send-offs are always a feel thing, and, and if it's spectacular and it was also bad, then it sort of always is enough. Um, and it, I don't have a problem with the send-off, but I don't think it was any worse than the ones in the first half, and it was a fair bit less intentional because a coat hanger like that, that it was done at pace where he got beaten by Kenny getting around him, was an accident that is definitely a sin bin and arguably yeah. a send-off, but like quite a bit less bad than intentional uppercuts to the head. Yes. Um, and that is the, the thing that really the, the, jumped out yeah. to me about this. Like this is very dramatic and theatrical and all of that, but it is not the sort of like violent, malicious attack that, uh, that is perpetrated on Ray Price or the one no. that's perpetrated on, on Delroy. Um, it but it is incredible. worth noting that mm. in terms of fairness of decision, we're only arguing that different Canterbury players should have got sent off instead. So I yeah. don't think that they can be any, any Canterbury fan aggrieved by this saying, well, yeah, that they're telling me that my player shouldn't have been sent off. We're saying, well, 
no, we're saying if he got sent off, they should have sent off like multiple other kids. Yeah, players. he shouldn't have been down to 12. It, he should have been down to 10. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, I will hasten to say definitely 10 in the bin, arguably a send off, not as bad as a couple that didn't get sent off and one that didn't even get penalised, I think was worse. So um, being the one on Delroy. So I, I don't think Canterbury fans have any reason to be aggrieved, but I think if you were sitting today and reviewing the refereeing performance as the head of the refereeing or something, you would say, why did you send him so fast? The other, the other good cricket one, when you said the reaction time is to use another cricket term, he the trigger finger on like he's been hit. Like oh, there's yeah. an appeal for LBW, and if the, the team has not turned around to it, like the, the fast bowler has bowled it, it's hit the pad, and he's still turning around to put up a shout, and the umpire's already got his finger up. That's how quick it was. Yeah, there's no horrible. possible time. It was so quick that he possibly couldn't have considered whether he should or shouldn't. He just went, oh, that's like a complete gut feel you would not have had time to make like to cognitively consider whether it should or shouldn't be. He's just gone on gut and his gut may well have been right, yeah. but it, it, he certainly could not have given it any rational thought in that amount of time. No, it's you see referees very deliberately not do this now. Like you, you, when something dramatic happens, they, you see them take a moment to pause and yep. even, even leaving aside that they have the video ref now, they, they always take a second to, take a deep breath and talk to their touch judges and just compose what they want to do. Um, Nick yep. Stone, not so much. Off you go, son. Go and have a shower. Uh, Canterbury then have to play the last 20 minutes of this game with 12. Uh, as you as you rightly point out, not necessarily unjust on the balance of things. Uh, but the, the last the last 20 minutes or so, and it's weird on the NRL, we, we watched this game on the NRL website and we seem to lose a bit of the game. They, they cut a bit of the footage out for some reason. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it was the way that it was cut by Channel 10 at the time or, or something like that uh, when they put the replay up or something. But uh, we lose a little bit of the game. But with 10 to go, uh, there is a fantastic kick from Peter Sterling when Canterbury are really starting to come for them. He just props and steps. He has this lovely amount of time, belts it um, upfield under pressure over the back over the whole Canterbury back three to turn them around. Uh, there is a a couple of little scraps where Mortimer and, Mortimer and Price need to be separated by the touchy. I don't know that I would have been going after Ray Price at this point in the game. I think he might have had enough and was liable to deck someone. Uh, there's a wonderful moment with about seven or eight minutes to go in which Brett Kenny goes down with an injury. That's not what's wonderful, but he needs treatment. And Rabs, bless him, points out that the trainers for Parramatta today are a father-son combo. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really knocked me sideways. Yeah, father-son trainer combo. One of whom, you well indeed. One of whom is bringing through the uh, is uh, using the magic sponge on on Brett yeah, Kenny, good. which obviously never fails. <laughs> um, Kenny then kicks out on the full from halfway. Canterbury get a scrum penalty. Uh, they get a bit of a chance. They go blind on last tackle, and uh, Paul Langmack ends up getting the ball away to Andrew Farrah. And there are six, and someone mentioned this in the comments when we asked about this gun, there are six Parramatta players who pile in to put Farrah into touch. And if you want to talk about the character of these sides and these players, they look absolutely dead when they get up. But six of them got across to make this tackle uh, with the game more or less on the line and Parramatta having a crack at their try line. Yeah, he goes, yeah, the Canterbury, Farrah goes to put, basically goes to power over the try line and one or two hold him up and then four more pile in and they oh. still only just get, they only just bundle him in a touch and he's centimetres away from scoring. So if one or two don't come in, 
Canterbury quite possibly score and win the grand final. It was it was a really good sneaky shot on the on a narrow blind. I liked it, and and it nearly paid off. And it took an incredible effort by Parramatta to save it out. It really did. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a, just a, a real marker of what they what those There's players a, were like. A lot of Mortimer in that well. set. There's yeah. a lot of Mortimer in that set. He, he gets them down there. He breaks through. He then takes the blind side on. He starts going to dummy half a lot and just getting himself in there. He takes that. He sets that blind side play up. He's done it a few times in that set to get him there. He just, it really was his half. Um, we haven't spoken about it a heap because it's not, there's not, not all these big moments to point to, but every half chance and every little part of this run comes off Mortimer running the football and Mortimer in space and hitting other guys in space. And he really has a, does everything in his power to to turn this game and uses every bit of what he's got and and playing another team on another day. There's every chance he would have ended up getting through them. Yeah, you know. Oh my word, he because he does. He throws heaps at them. Um, yeah, and that and even with three or four minutes to go, there is a heap of drama left in the game. The finish, as we said, yep. the best football of the game is actually played by Canterbury with twelve men in the last few minutes, where they start throwing it around, uh, and you do wonder whether. Maybe they might have had a little bit more joy by doing this a little bit earlier, or um, yep. doing this occasionally during the game. If they'd have just gone wide from from time to time, it might have there might have been some joy there because they do they do really threaten uh, with the ball in the last few minutes. In the seventy seventh minute, there is great drama uh, because Andrew Farrow makes a half break. Uh, there is a crowd around him. and he is looking to find Steve Mortimer, who is coming through in support. I think it's Steve Mortimer, one of the Mortimers. It's Steve Mortimer, yeah. It is Steve, yeah. Yep. And he is just blatantly, <laughs> you want to talk professional foul, this is like, this is an executive foul. This isn't just professional. This is top tier. Uh, Bugden just comes across and absolutely clobbers him out of the way when so that he can't receive the ball. It is a penalty, but it's a penalty 35 metres out, out wide, um, when instead they might have had Steve Mortimer running onto a pass in space. Um, I think in the end, Bugden, even though he goes for five in the bin, gets value out of this foul because uh, all it leads to is Terry Lamb taking a fairly unlikely penalty goal attempt, 10 in from touch, 35 out, which misses. He hits pretty well. He does hit it well. He hits it pretty well. He's unlucky, yeah. Mm. Um, In the end, it's a a professional foul that served its purpose, you would have to say. Um, Yeah. Yeah, but it's drama because it means that all of a sudden they're back to 12 with the last few minutes of the game. And the last minute in particular is wild. They, Canterbury get the ball back. O'Brien makes a run to get them to halfway. Hagen then makes a half break to get them to the 22. And after a great spread through the hands and half breaks from the left, they then spread it back the other way and seem to have numbers on the right. As Langmack goes through, He's got support either side. He tries to turn it back inside, which I think was probably the thing to do, but it's knocked down by the zip-zip man, Steve Eller. Uh, Canterbury still have the ball. They have six to go. Parramatta are appallingly short to their, to their right. They've got one defender to the right of the, of the posts. And Dunn gets the ball and runs straight. And then Bugden goes from dummy half. <laughs> and... There is one play left, and uh, they they the, the the siren goes and it's all over. And they their their attempt to try and steal it at the death fell apart. I'm not wrong here. I'm mean, like they they have them absolutely shot to pieces. If they after when that pass is knocked down from Langmack and they end up playing the ball, if they go to the left, they almost have to score. 
There'd be a fairly good chance of it, yeah. Um, I thought uh, they were pretty short. It, it's they had to they had to keep spreading it. One of the questions I was going to ask is, uh, I don't believe. Am I wrong in saying that they would not know how long's left? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, does that seem a little bit unfair? Like because. Uh, I understand that he perhaps shouldn't have gone down the short side from dummy half when yeah. they had them on the open. But do you think that he almost definitely wouldn't have if they knew there was, say, five seconds left? And is there any reason, is there any particular reason or virtue in having the players not know that? I'm not sure. This is I, I don't know for certain that they wouldn't have known. Because uh, the commentators don't. They're speculating about how long true. it's left. Like, like Hughes at one point is going, I reckon there's a minute and a half. And if the commentators don't know, the yeah. players don't know. Because the, uh, if the commentators were seeing it on some sort of system, then the trainers would see it and tell the players. Yeah, if it was on like, the scoreboard it, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The players and, would and, have been able to see it on yeah, the scoreboard. Anything yeah. the commentators had access to, the trainers would have found. And I, I just because it just seems to me that... Um, Parramatta deserve to win the grand final, but I'm just sure that Parramatta, like Canterbury sort of deserve to know whether they have time here or not, or how many plays mm. they've got. Totally. Right? totally. But there doesn't seem to be any reason or any virtue in hiding that information. Like there's no reason for the players to be obscured from knowing how long there is to play. No, I absolutely right? agree. Like, yeah, they have course. to almost approach every play like it's their last play. So you can make Once a criticism. Once you get within that... the last minute or something, it's almost like you have to you have to keep trying to score off every play because the siren could go at any second. Um, That's yeah, right. Yeah, you're right. I do think that the thing that jumped out to me about this, you're absolutely right. The, the thing that jumped out to me about this last minute is that they really are victims of their own style, right? Like... Mm. In the last minute, when they have to get the ball wide, they are still they've still got these front rowers and second rowers who want to take hit ups, and they they still want to kind of play a territory game three meters out from the attacking the, the Parramatta line with like you know seconds left in the grand final, and and again maybe if they had been a little bit uh, if they'd been a little bit keener to spread the ball and get the backs involved, uh, it may not have come to this, or they might have been able to do something in this last minute because again like they. It's it's putting it through the hands that gets them up there in the first place, and then all of a sudden they get five out and stop doing it and start carting it up hard and straight again. Uh, I, yeah, they seem to they, they they seem to just not be able to kick the habit when it really when it really came down to it in the last minute. Mm. That that was the walk style of play, and that's probably why he fell out with Mortimer, who was a very attacking and aggressive mm. player, and. Um, it's hard to criticise the walk because his record was so phenomenal. But if you had, if there was a shortcoming there, they probably the inability to embrace that or or take a bit on board from what his players had might be it. And it seemed like the more they went away from his game plan, the more likely they were to actually get over the top of Parramatta um, and to use some stuff that Mortimer had that could have won that game. Um, Isn't it funny to think and, that the walk goes from coaching this Canterbury team, one of the most, and I don't use this word pejoratively, but you know, one of the most dour and tough and rugged sides in history. And 15 years later, he's coaching the late 90s Newcastle Knights. Yeah, yeah. It's... <laughs> could have used to, probably could have used a little bit of this. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it is. It, it's, um, I, I think that the way he played when they were, he, this would have worked if they were the best team. Yeah. They wouldn't have needed to, if they were the best team on the day, um, if they if they had a better team than Parramatta, they would have won. But I think Parramatta had more more ammo than them, and they needed to fire back with some of their ammo. Like they they yeah. weren't, you know, there was just going to be too many moments 
with Parramatta's strike power that if you just didn't play any football, it feels to me like Parramatta would end up having a bit much for you. Um, and, and you were leaving it to chance when you didn't need to, that if you, you, you hadn't, I think they had enough players there mm. to do some stuff. I thought Michael Hagen was really threatening and breaking through at different times of the game. And Mortimer, I thought was really outstanding. And, and the, you know, they had Sigsworth. We didn't get to see much of who, who's got a good reputation for having a lot of ability. And there was, you know, um, one of their wingers had scored 12 tries that year and was, was quite fast. And they just probably didn't use any of that to the level that they perhaps could have tried and they tried to keep it very tight. And like you said, the more they went away from that in the last 20 and particularly 10 minutes, the more threatening and more likely they looked to win the game. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it's, um, yeah, I think that's right. It's funny. that it, it, It's funny how close they came to stealing it. it you, yeah. It's not re- it's one of the it's one of the kind of lesser remembered bits of this game for all the stuff about Trilus and Phil Sigsworth and all this. Like Canterbury come within a couple of plays and you do feel like if there'd been a couple more minutes, they might have just nicked this. Um, and they could have stolen it right at the end. And in the end, it's a game without a lot of drama throughout it that has an extremely good finish. Like there aren't many grand finals yep. that, that finish like this, um, with with one team desperately clinging on on their line as the siren goes. Um, so in that way... Well, it, was like, it was like the Cowboys-Broncos one, except there wasn't a try yeah. at the end. Like the way the Broncos and Cowboys finished where the Cowboys are making those helter spreads across the field and Kyle Felt goes in. There was that sort of like chaos and drama. It just doesn't end in, in this case. They hold them out. Yeah. And it's no, like that for the last five it. minutes. It's like that for the last probably three to five minutes, not just the last set. Like the whole last five minutes is like this scrambled... Parramatta trying to just not concede. Uh, the, the Parramatta is not any hope of adding to their score or troubling Canterbury. All, all they are trying to do is just find a way to not concede a try for the next couple of minutes and doing clinging on or Canterbury throw absolutely everything at them. It's, it's, it is really helter-skelter, actually. Mm. No, it, it is. And, uh, yeah, it's a great finish. It's, it's really, really exciting. Uh, Parramatta claim the title... Uh, Ray Price and and Mick Cronin are hoisted onto the shoulders of their teammates. Uh, not before a, a young Ray Hadley is visible trying to interview Price on the field. That was a nice touch <laughs> to see him come barreling out uh, in a in a in a sport in a blazer and uh, and, and and slacks uh, to interview Ray Price. But yeah, they they are the, the thing about this was they hadn't actually announced that they were retiring. There was all this speculation that they were going to, but they hadn't actually announced it. And then, of course, they're thrown on the shoulders. It becomes pretty clear what's going on. Uh, I wanted to raise a couple of things about the post-match presentation, uh, mm. if you'll indulge me. I shall. Uh, first of all, a young, a very young Tim Webster is the MC. <laughs> um, no. Yes, yes, very young. Um, well, this is a long way before Sports Tonight, Tim Webster. Uh, and he introduces... Well, first of all, Stan Costigan, chair of Winfield, makes a few remarks. Good, good. Uh, and then the Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, uh, is invited to make a few, to, to, to say a few words to a chorus of boos from the SCG. Now, I know people will tell you, and like Bob Hawke is remembered as the most popular Prime Minister in Australian history. He's remembered as a Prime Minister who was in particular popular with. Uh, working class people and, you know, ordinary people, you know, people in the suburbs and all this kind of thing. That's the mythology around Bob Hawke. But even then, even when it was Hawkey, he still got booed. 
And that, to me, there are very few things that make me prouder to be an Australian than hearing a Prime Minister that more people than not actually liked still getting a bake at the grand final. It's a very yeah, important, because... very important national tradition. Absolutely. It doesn't matter whether you actually like him, voted for him or whatever else. Yeah. Um, if the Prime Minister is going to show up at a sporting Boom. event, you know, um, and sort of try and congratulate the winner, you've mm. got to let him know about it. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I totally. He also he makes a he makes quite a, a lengthy speech, which includes quite a bizarre reference to uh, the the America's Cup, and um and, and Australia's prospects of claiming back the America's Cup in 1986, uh, which <laughs> I reckon there would have been a bit of this from Hawking in the mid 80s, a fair bit of like noun verb America's Cup, um, yeah, you know, like when in doubt, when yeah. Uh, Peter Sterling is awarded the Churchill Medal uh, pretty fairly. Like he, we probably haven't given enough credit to the way he played in the second half. What you say is absolutely, there is a real sense of like parry and thrust, right? Like Mortimer is making these attacks and threatening Parramatta and Sterling is getting them out of trouble every time. He's the one who's yep. booting it upfield, organising them. Um, he's involved in, in everything good that happens for them. I think it's a, I, I didn't have any particular complaints about him winning the Churchill. I'm fine with it. Um, I think if Parramatta have scored a try, I would have given it to Brett Kenny. Yeah. Um, I thought Brett Kenny, every, I thought everything dangerous that happened in this game and that was nearly a try or was a big break that happened for Parramatta involved Brett Kenny. I don't think there was a time where something good happened that didn't involve him. Um, Sterlow got them out of trouble and all that stuff, and I'm happy for him to get it. But if they had have won this, say, 10-2 yeah. with one of those Kenny tries going in, I think Kenny then has to get it. You know, like it, yep. it, it's just the fact that none of Kenny's spark ended up in them scoring any points probably is what holds it back where you say Sturlow's control and the whole narrative of how he ran the game wins out. But if they had have actually scored one of those, if any of those things led to points, I think Kenny has to get it. And I think he's close anyway. Yep. I think that's fair. There were a few, there were a fair few, a fair few contenders, especially in a game where there are no points that there were quite a few, you could have said, oh, no complaints about that particularly. Uh, Ray Price gets up on stage, holds the trophy lock, Aloft, he really does look like the undead. Like it's hard to embellish yeah. how how battered he looks when he gets up. Uh, People don't look like that when they finish rugby league anymore. No, like, not like it, that. It doesn't look Jesus. like that. You you have been very critical in the past of rugby league players being far too polished in their uh, media appearances. Ray Price mm. gets up and he wants to congratulate the Canterbury players, but he can't see them. So his first remark when he gets up on the stage to the microphone is. Where's Canterbury gone? <laughs> so he looks, and then he spots them, not where he expected. He congratulates them on the game and all of this, and then he announces his retirement on the stage in the most nonchalant way possible. Uh, he says something like, um, "Thank you all for thank you all for being here, and this will be the last time I ever play here." And that's it. And he goes, it's, you know, and and that, that's he calls he calls Cronin on the stage to lift the trophy with him. And they commence their life of honour. And Rabs informs us that uh, uh, the replay will be on at ten o'clock after the movie. Uh, the replay will be on Channel Ten after the movie at ten thirty tonight. If you want to watch What's the movie, I, he didn't say. Unfortunately, it's a shame. I, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure, but um, I would obviously love to know. And that's that. Yeah, we could find out. Can I just a word on Rabs? who at this point is very somber because he thinks his career is finishing. Isn't his commentary style different at this point? That He's so fast that the, the words are coming out rat-a-tat-tat like a, um, 
like an American, uh, like a South American soccer commentator or something, or like he's still calling on radio. It was really noticeable how just the tempo of his speech was so much quicker. He doesn't sound like the Rabs that we knew watching on Channel 9 where he would draw out the words and add all this drama through a mm. very a very slow kind of enunciation of things. Do you know what I no, mean? No, he was quite different. Yeah, he was very it was it was young and unpolished Rabs. I thought he was good, but it's a long way from the finished product of the mid 90s when he was he he became wonderful at in the mid 90s at understatement followed by rising for knowing when something really good had happened and rising with it so just be like you know sergeant inside to harrigan tackled on the 20 like not saying too much at all and just letting the game go and letting you watch it and then something would happen and he would just rise with it oh they've gone through and pick the game up and then start being really descriptive when something worth describing had happened but before that he was he was quite actually quite understated when not much was happening you know Mm. Uh, just Mm. be like you know, on the 22, up again, and oh, when something happened, we're here. Yeah. He's still very through the thing. But I thought he was good, but it, it's clear. Yeah. It's funny. He, he definitely improved, I think, a lot over time um, to the finished product. It's obviously him, but it sounds, he sounds a lot younger and, and a lot yeah closer to radio. And, and it's funny. I, I looked, I was reading about this because you, you know my fascination with commentary, you know, that he, mm. um, he says, uh, he, he started, he first did television in 1974 with the AMCO Cup on Channel 10. He said, I made the transition very slowly, to be honest with you. I found it very difficult to cut back the amount of words that are not required in a television call. It was very hard to get used to the fact that there are pictures there and people can see for themselves. You've still got to put a bit of excitement into it, but I found it very difficult to make the transition. I probably only started to get more comfortable about 15, 20 years ago. Um, so that's, that's 15, 20 years ago. This is kind of the late 90s he's talking about there. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's interesting. I it was just a it was. Well, a, it makes a, sense. Yeah, hmm. Hmm. and it was a curious thing because he was still doing the whole. They're on the twenty meter line, looking to the right, and all this kind of stuff. Which you you, you know, um, well, Ray Hadley's never got out of that for someone who does radio. He he when he calls Channel Nine now, he is appalling as someone with a radio background. Um, because I actually don't find him as much as I find him personally detestable. Don't find him a bad radio caller. Yeah. Like I don't, when he calls radio games, I feel like he describes what's happening to a point where I can walk away with an understanding of what went on, which is really important. Mm. Some guys call and all I really know is that the team scored. I don't understand the mechanics of it, but on, he's appalling on television. And you know, he used to do those awful, um, remember when there'd be two games on a Friday at 7.30 yeah. and the Brisbane one would be the second, re- be the replay in New South Wales yeah. at 9.30 and you chuck him on and the, the level of description was just awful. Like kicks off on halfway, it lands 20 metres out to the right-hand side of the post, throws a pass back on the left-hand side to blah, blah, and you're just like, fuck me, mate, I can see it. It's like, really I just don't need that. It's, it's that really, yeah, and I can imagine yeah. that it would actually be a really hard habit to break out of. Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. Anyway, like, it sounds like he's calling horse racing sometimes, the level of description, like, you know, the yeah. radio horse racing calls um, is what um, Hadley sounds like on television. It's bloody and awful. The, and the, the fast speaking like that, like the mm. sort of thing that Rams was doing in 86 and, and what you, like Hadley more recently, it's actually quite discordant with the TV game. It feels wrong. Like it, yeah. the, the, the pictures, things happen much more slowly on the picture. So you don't, you, having someone really rabbiting over the top of it is quite, um, quite mm. bothersome. Yeah. Anyway, I, uh, I, I, I just wanted to to note that that it's a it's a it's a funny version of rabs it's the as you say the, the pre-finished article uh, the only other thing to mention is is poor old phil sixworth that was his third grand final loss to Parramatta for a third club 
Um, he had lost to them with Newtown in 81. He'd lost to them with Manly in 83. And he had lost to them in 86 with Canterbury. Gazzy, any final thoughts on 1986? No, I don't think so. Really enjoyed watching that. Um, it was good to get a glory game from that, that Parramatta side. Uh, I'd be keen over time. Uh, we have an infinite amount of time to keep doing these games. So at some mm. point in time, I would like to do a, a game where they really put some points on someone and we can really have a look yeah. at um, Sterling and, and, and Kenny and some of those guys um, in, in their pomp, which sounds like it might be the early 80s, might be the time for that. So looking forward to that. Um, and I encourage anyone who is um, upset by my Mick Cronin comments to suggest some games where he has a very good game so I can watch that and mea culpa about it. Yeah. And if you would like to, if you would like to send us a death threat uh, or uh, awesome support, uh, you can do so through rugbyleaguecemetery at gmail.com. Uh, which is the place for all correspondence or, or on the Facebook page uh, where you can, where you can jump on and, and stick the boot into Gazzy for his, uh, uh, what would you call it? Iconoclasm uh, around Mick Cronin. Anyway, Gazzy. Historical revisionism. Historical yeah. revision. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you listeners. Uh, we'll be back shortly with another one from the Rugby League Cemetery. <laughs>